Hey, welcome back to the Elements of Adventure podcast. I'm your host, Ben Komen. Today, my guest is Stephen Thomas. Stephen and I work together at the American Red Cross. Uh, We're going to talk about dirtbag credibility, the qualifications of being an adventurer, equality in adventure, and the mind space of someone on a long-distance bike tour. He's got a lot of really great tips to share, uh, tricks for doing a long trip successfully. Uh, Really looking forward to sharing this with you, and I hope that you get something of value out of it. Stick around at the end for some ways to support the podcast, and as always, thank you for being a supportive listener. Hey, buddy. Can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. How are you? Oh, good. No, I'm doing good. Good. uh, Enjoying my Saturday. How about you? About the same. Did you guys get to go out and play in the snow at all? You know, we had every intention this morning. We had to go get the car. There was a snow ban in Portland last night. Uh, So we walked down the hill to get the car and it was just bone chilling cold. Like it it was in the teens and the weather app said it felt like single digits. So yeah, we we went and got the car and then we went to uh, the grocery store because we desperately needed to do that. By the time we got back, it was like uh, 11 o'clock or something. And we're like, I don't know if we want to. Yeah. I might go out tomorrow morning. That's the new plan. Okay, good, good. I hope you get the yeah, opportunity. I'm, yeah, I'm hoping we'll we'll have a chance to uh to head out tomorrow instead of today. Today was just just bitter cold. Yeah, terrible. yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. What about you? Did you get snow? Uh we got a little bit. We've got about we had about two inches on the ground, I'd say. We're supposed to get another inch and maybe some ice tonight. Nothing too bad. Okay. Um so yeah, it wasn't terrible. But it's it's cold here too. Probably not as cold as it is up there, but it was definitely cold here as well and we just kind of laid low and um didn't really do a whole lot so yeah it's just one of those days it looks really nice outside it looks deceptively warm (laughs) yeah we had that same experience not a cloud in the sky so yeah one would think that it was a nice day but it was not absolutely Um, but we did some spring cleaning instead we're apartment looking very very clean very polished and we're downsizing anytime you get a bunch of stuff for christmas it's like time to go through everything you own and make sure that you're not nesting so absolutely absolutely it's really what my day was spent on nice 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 so tell me a little bit about you live in portland maine um Mm -hmm. maine has actually come up a couple times in uh, other episodes uh one Mm -hmm. of my first guests was talking about um acadia being his absolute favorite national park Um, beautiful yeah so i've heard i haven't been so tell me a little bit about what you like about maine and um what what draws you there kind of frame it for me give me a bird's eye perspective sure well i've lived in maine for about two years this is our third winter in maine um and so it's definitely not the winter that brings me here um but i will say (laughs) maine maine is a romanticized place you know like when you Mm. think about what maine looks like what you're picturing in your head with you know the, the coast and the birds and the lighthouses and the forests and you know like all of that is pretty true i mean it's uh it's a, a very bucolic place. It's it's very gorgeous. There's a lot of um, biological diversity, a lot of ecological diversity. Um, so there's a lot to see here. And that's, you know, people call it vacation land. I highly recommend taking vacations. Hmm. Sometimes it feels like we're just living on vacation. Um, awesome. you know, it's, it's a really nice place to be. Um, nice. And we really love it here. And especially, you know, Portland's right on the ocean. So uh, I'm originally from the Midwest, so we took vacations to the ocean, but it wasn't something that was very accessible to me uh, growing up. So it's really nice to be somewhere where that's right out my front door. It's a 10 minute walk to the to the waterline, and uh, it's just really nice to be here. That's awesome. Do you do any water sports? Like, do you kayak or anything like that? Or I, I don't. You know, I've been sea kayaking. That's something I've tried okay. before. Nice. Um, 
I, uh, I had a bad episode on the Snake River in Wyoming when I was young. Uh, I was canoeing with my family and they released the dam upstream and that wasn't oh my supposed gosh. to happen. Uh, so I almost no drowned when I was probably 11 or 12. Wow. Um, and so I, I, I have a healthy respect and fear of water. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I still go swimming and things like that, but sea kayaking, I, I went once and I don't know if when I'll be ready to try that again, maybe That's next year. We'll totally see. fair. Well, I'm really glad you didn't drown. Um, yeah, me for too. Sure. <laughs> for sure. And yeah. that, that really helps me get an idea of what Maine is like. I was actually, when you said you'd spent three winters there, I was laughing and I was like, I wonder if life in Maine is measured in winters. Sometimes it feels like <laughs> life in Albany is where it's like, yeah, yeah, three winters now, you know, so it's good to hear that it's idyllic and beautiful as well. But yeah. I'll say the summers, you know, if you're just coming for a visit, Summers are crowded, but there's a reason. I mean, people come here because it is absolutely stunning. The weather is perfect. There's so much to do. Um, yeah, so it's the summers are definitely nicer. The winters are are cold and long. Um, but again, you can you can make the most of it. Um, you know, we we go cross country skiing. We have uh, little cleats that we can hike in the snow in, and uh, we have snowshoes. You know, there's a lot to do. If you're willing to go outside and be cold, there's still a lot you can do. Nice, nice. So where did you live before Maine? Kind of give me a picture of where yeah. you've grown up. <laughs> uh, well, I've, I've lived a lot of places. Um, I grew up, I was born in Cincinnati, and I grew up in the suburbs uh, across the Ohio River in Kentucky. So hmm. I'm sometimes a Kentuckian and sometimes a Cincinnatian, uh, depending on what's easier. Um, but, uh, but ever since, you know, I went to college real close to where you went to college. Uh -huh. uh, I went to Eastern Kentucky University for my undergrad. And that's in the right in the heart of, of central Kentucky, kind of Appalachia and in the foothills there. Um, also beautiful in its own right. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, after after undergrad, I pretty much spent my 20s, you know, traveling a lot and, and doing a lot of um, like service programs and kind of adventurous things. When I was about 21 or 22, I, I told myself my goal was not to be like meaningfully or gainfully employed until I was 30. I love so, that. <laughs> it, was, uh, it led to a lot of, it, it had me looking for a lot of opportunities to kind of postpone what I guess most people would consider the real world. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of getting like a nine to five job where you have a lot of commitments and obligations. You know, I was looking for more experiential kinds of things. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did a few years of AmeriCorps. I lived in Philly for one of those years. I lived downtown in Cincinnati, which was very different from the suburban environment where I grew up. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also did a year of AmeriCorps called NCCC. It stands for National Civilian Community Corps. And it's a, uh, a tra traveling program. You kind of live and work with 10 to 12 other people. You uh, live out of a duffel bag and you, you kind of crash with nonprofit sponsors or state parks or you know, wherever you can find opportunities. And you serve for you know, six or eight weeks usually. Um, and, and you work alongside your team doing whatever they need 10 or 12 people to do. And after that 10 or 12 weeks is up, you, you move. Uh, so mm. then you go to a different place. Uh, and we did that for 10 months on the East Coast. Uh, so I lived in, I think, nine states in 10 months. Uh, wow. we, just, we just moved a lot. Um, wow. So it was a really incredible program and, and one I would not have found if I wasn't looking for that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, and yeah, so anyway, I, I spent my 20s living a lot of places. I lived in Hawaii for a while. I've, I've done a lot of long tour, long distance bike touring. Uh, including a trip across the country. Um, yeah, and, and eventually settled, I eventually went back to the Midwest, went to grad school in Indiana, and uh, then moved to Massachusetts and now to Maine. Nice. So I, 
I get around. I, I like to move. That's awesome. I definitely want to get into the bike tour in a little bit. Um, sure. I'm sure there's some really good stuff in there. Where do you mm-hmm. consider home? Um, wherever, I guess, wherever I am, you know, it's, okay. it's, I, Cincinnati will always be home. You know, when I, yeah, I go see yeah. my family, that's, that's still where all my immediate family is. Um, I don't come from a big family, but that's where they all are. So, so that, you know, when I say I, I went home for the holidays, that's what I mean. But, um, but, you know, I, I don't have trouble, you know, settling into a place and really identifying with it, like getting a sense of community in a hurry, maybe because I moved around so, so much when I was a younger adult. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I just, I, you know, after about a year, anywhere can feel like home. That's true. That's true. That's very, very true. I've always said for me, home is home is wherever Corinne is, my, my wife. Um, yep. I still have, you know, I, I have a sense of place in one geographic location. There is somewhere that I like being, um, mm-hmm. but I'm with you. You can, you can adjust to anywhere for sure. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, I think it's different for different people. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I've definitely met people and, and a lot of people I grew up with, you know, they would never dream of living, of leaving where I, where I grew up from mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. where I come from. That is home to them. And they sort of identify with the place more than, more than I do. I, you know, I like going home. I like visiting my family, but I, there's nothing left for me in Cincinnati. You know, I've, I've kind of done what there is, what I feel there is to do what's there for me. I've taken advantage of, um, and I'm, there's, there's too many other places I want to go too many other things I want to see. I can't bear the thought of staying in one place for that long. Absolutely. What was the most powerful lesson that you learned? I mean, you've lived in so many different places. You, you've gotten a mm-hmm. great snapshot of this country and, and I mean, all over, what's the most powerful lesson you learned living in all of those different parts of this country and experiencing, um, experiencing it that way? Wow. That's a really good question. Um, I, you know, I think one of the things that's, that's, uh, that's really nice about travel living in different places is, is nice, but, but especially in travel, you meet so many different people Mm. um, and you meet people from all walks of life and they're, they're always doing something different and they have stories of their own and it's always nice to get to know new people. Um, But, but I've always been pleasantly surprised um, by the people I've met and how Mm. wonderful they are and how accommodating and open and friendly. And um, and it's, it's, at this point, it's kind of no longer a surprise that whenever Mm. I travel, I end up meeting wonderful people. But, you know, if you grow up in the same community and you don't really venture far from it, you things can feel a little insular, maybe Mm -hmm. be a little apprehensive about going to a new place where you don't know anybody. And like, what are the people going to be like? And, you know, almost everywhere I've been, I've met just crazy nice people um, who are are very helpful and and looking to, to be a part of your story and looking to share stories of their own. And yeah, um, it's one of my favorite things about traveling is that you're constantly meeting new people, constantly making new friendships and new relationships. Um, And so I, you know, I, I cherish my high school friends, I cherish my college friends, and then I cherish all my friends from all these different experiences and AmeriCorps programs and jobs. And, you know, I feel like I have this really robust human network in my life because I've, I've traveled so much and, and met so many people. Community is so important, right? Like, it, that's mm-hmm. something that has come up in other episodes as well, is that there is a, there, I think those of us who try to live adventurously sort of develop this community and that's such a central part of our experience. How do you maintain that? How do you work to keep in touch with all those people? And um, how does community inform your idea of adventure? Another good question. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think it's, I think relationships are, 
you're drawn to people who, who see the world sometimes in the same ways that you do. I mean, you always meet different people, but, but as far as my relationships with people, I feel like they understand, you know, like I understand that, that they're going to move and that we're kind of in each other's lives while we're here. And then if we drift apart, that's okay. If we have an opportunity to reconnect in the future, it's, it feels a lot like we pick up right where we left off. You know, you yeah. have that shared history and that, that sense of camaraderie. And I've been to a lot of weddings where I, I haven't ah. seen the person in eight years. And then all of a sudden they're getting married. I get an invite and, you know, it's, it's amazing to, to have that kind of connection. And I think again, by sort of by nature of, of what these programs have been, what my travels have been, the kind of lifestyle that I actively seek out. I feel like you make those connections with people who understand that and they, they don't have a lot of expectations. They don't, they don't, it's not an obligation to, to kind of stay in touch all the time, but when you do have opportunities to see each other or, you know, if they're coming through your area or, or whatever, uh, it's, it's always amazing to reconnect, find out what they've been up to. Mm. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not huge on social media. So I, I, mm -hmm. you know, it's, that's not really a, an avenue for me, but you know, whenever live lines cross, lines cross. And, and if they mm. don't, then, and I don't think that that, takes away from from anything that we we had or anything like that yeah does, does that make sense yeah it does that there's a certain seasonality to life and i think that's what you're mm -hmm. kind of getting at in, and that yeah. that reflects in our friendships and our relationships sometimes too i think it's easy to forget that but um yeah there's a yeah, natural all, ebb and flow exactly yeah we all are kind of going through different chapters and yeah. and again i think people who recognize that or, or see it especially if you're turning the page a lot you know yeah. then i think people don't expect that you are going to be in their life forever. They're, yeah. they're going to appreciate what they have. And, and again, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you see them again, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've gotten, I've said goodbye a lot uh, mm -hmm. to a lot of people and mm -hmm. I, of course I miss them all, but yeah. missing them is not, I'm thankful for the time we had. And that's yeah. kind yeah. of the approach that I take. And I think that's the approach that others take as well. I hope that's, so. That's a really great way to look at it. I really like that perspective. Speaking of weddings, you just uh, went on a wedding in a fairly recent, went to a wedding in a fairly recent yeah. past and you visited Yosemite, right? I did. Yeah. yeah. yeah we, How I was, was I that? To, I, well, I had to think of which wedding you were talking about because last year we did, <laughs> you know, we did one yeah. in Atlantic City. We did one in Seattle. Uh, I officiated nice. that one. That one was fun. Oh, did you? Nice. Uh, I did. And then we went to one in Northern California, which is the one you're, you're sort of referencing. Yeah. And that was in October. So it was oh, uh, nice. late season for Yosemite. Yeah, uh, which was really nice because it wasn't yeah. crowded at all. I mean, there were people, of course, but mm -hmm. uh, and the campsites, it was hopeless to try and camp in the park. But yeah, um, yeah. but we got a, a, a campsite very close to the park, 20, 25 minutes outside the main gates. Uh, I had never been to Yosemite. My partner hadn't either. Uh, traveled awesome. a lot, but had never been there. So uh, it was on my bucket list to go and see the valley and, and you know, hike up the canyons. And it was beautiful. I mean, that's just, super cool. It's it's hard to describe. It's one of those yeah. things. But, but everything that everybody says about it is true. Yeah. Um, yep. So if you have an opportunity to go, I, I highly recommend it. I had a really similar experience. I haven't been stricken speechless very many times in my life. <laughs> and mm -hmm. that was, that was one where I, I just, I couldn't find the words when I first saw it. I mean, it was just incredible. Uh, I'm really yeah. glad that I wasn't driving when we went in the park the first time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you drive into the Valley and yeah. uh, El Capitan especially is just, oh my gosh. just stunning. And yeah. it's, it's staggering and awe-inspiring and all the, all the things that people say. Yeah. Um, and my, one of my favorite experiences, we did it. We did the, the hike to Glacier Point. It's like a four oh, mile cool. hike yeah. up to Glacier. I'm sure you did it as well. 
Um, but it's a, a great hike that runs right up the valley and you get tons of, of spectacular views and so on. Yeah. Um, but one of my favorite things is, is coming down from that hike uh, and on the way out of the park that night, it was after dark, and you could see the rock climbers on yes. El Capitan with their headlamps and their bivy sacks and like kind of halfway up the wall. You just see it's pitch black except for the little lights that are on the wall. And uh, and that was just really breathtaking. It was like yeah. looking at looking at the night sky, but it was this, you know, sheer rock face, granite rock face with uh, with little people all the That's way up. That's so cool. That's so <laughs> yeah, it was, cool. It was really, really cool. I love nice. it. That's awesome. Have you have you always considered yourself to be outdoorsy? Is that a is that a term that you define yourself with? No, no, not really. Well, okay. certainly Interesting. not certainly, certainly not growing up. Okay. Um, okay. There was no um like my family, we went we went to a lot of national parks when I was young. Mm. And I think that's where I get my wanderlust. Um okay. you know, we didn't I came from a pretty modest means family, but and, and the vacations that we took you know we couldn't afford to go to disney world or mm-hmm. or you know so we went to national parks which it were free or we would buy the annual pass and mm-hmm. um, so anyway so i did a lot of traveling when i was growing up as we would take vacations with my family and that's what we always focused on uh, but my parents were not were not the camping type you know like we yeah. would hike yep. on the boardwalk trails at yosemite but we yep. weren't going back country like my my mom in a tent is one of the funnier things i can imagine <laughs> um so that's so anyway, so I didn't really grow up in an outdoorsy environment. It's not something that I think um, that I think of myself as, as having been when I was young. Yeah. But when I was in college, you know, I mentioned I went to uh, eastern Kentucky, which is, again, right in the foothills of the Appalachians. It's very close to the Red River Gorge. Yep. Uh, it's also close to a, a hiking preserve that I know, you know, called mm-hmm. uh, the Pinnacles in Berea. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I really fell in love with with outdoor activities in those environments, you know, going yeah. on hikes with my friends and you know, you, the payoffs there are really nice. You know, you hike a couple of miles and then you get spectacular views. Yeah. And it's, it's nice, not just for the activity of hiking, but also for that payoff. Mm-hmm. I still find myself kind of selfishly wanting that on every hike I go on. I'm like, yeah. man, if I were at the pinnacles by now, I would see, <laughs> I'd have, I would, you know, I'd be at the top of the mountain. I would see the valley. And yeah. Um, so, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely not something and I guess, you know, we all compare ourselves to others. I'm, I don't live the van life. I don't, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't rock climb. I could never do what those people were doing on El Cap. Like, I just don't have the, the, the stomach for it. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. so, so I definitely, I compare myself to other people. I think of other people as outdoorsy. I don't think mm-hmm. of myself that way. Interesting. That's very interesting. Um, so how, you know, would you, how would you describe yourself? What are some, what are some words do you consider yourself to be an adventurer? Do you consider yourself to be a traveler? How do you see yourself? Yeah, I think, I, you know, I used to be cool, Ben. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I still think you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Um, no, I, I think, you know, some of those words, adventurer, traveler, I mean, some of that stuff, I, you know, I feel like I used to be those things and I still sort of seek out opportunities to do, to kind of relive some of that. Uh, you know, my preference would be to be that all the time. You know, if I yeah. could just lead bike tours for a living, I would love to do that. Um, but, but that's not where my life is right now. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that, but, yeah. um, but yeah, so I, I think I used to be more, more adventurous, more spontaneous, kind of have less, um, less tying me down or weighing me down. And, yeah. um, and that's maybe not where I am now, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, and I think, how do I think of myself now? I, um, you know, I still do love adventure. I have always structured my adventures so that they're not, uh, to me, they're not as scary. You know, I, re- I want to be somebody who's really spontaneous and adventurous and is just like, well, let everything come to him. 
And I, but I'm not that way. You know, I, I, I traveled a lot, but it was always with AmeriCorps programs or mm. because I had a job lined up or, you know, like I look for opportunity and then I'll make the jump. I yeah. can't, I can't imagine it just doesn't, my constitution doesn't allow for me to just like pick up and move somewhere and then figure it out when I get there. Yeah. I get like chills just thinking about that. Um, so, I'm, so I'm a funny kind of adventurer. I consider myself like, I don't want to say like planned spontaneity. That's too I actually too really like that. <laughs> but, but, but I like to, I like structured spontaneity maybe. Okay. Like, you know, okay. if, if I'm in a, if I can plan it, if I can structure it, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, to do it. And God bless my partner, uh, Tessa, of, of almost nine years. She is much more spontaneous than me and really challenges me to be less kind of intentional about some of the things mm. that we're planning. Like when we went to Yosemite, we knew we were going for five days. We planned nothing. And that That's was awesome. not my style, but yeah. also really refreshing. And, and yeah. you know, if I had been going by myself, I would have looked at the maps. I would have tried to figure out what exactly I want to do. Yep. And she is one of those people who lets things come to her. And I think we balance each other really well in that way, especially when we're traveling. That's beautiful. That's really, really beautiful. So how does your relationship influence? So that's one way that your relationship sort of influences your idea of adventure. Are there any other ways that your relationship with her has enhanced your idea of adventure or changed the way that you approach it? Yeah, I think it's... Um... So again, we've, we've been together for almost nine years. We're, we're not married, but we're very committed. And, um, and I think it, it's a very, adventuring with someone else is always different than adventuring by yourself. And mm -hmm. a lot of my time in my twenties, you know, despite meeting people along the way, a lot of it was spent on my own. You know, you, mm -hmm. you enroll in this program, you go by yourself, you know, you, you do this and then you kind of pick up people when you get there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very different when you set out with somebody. Um, but it doesn't, again, it's not a bad different. It's just different. Um, you know, I think about some of the bike tours I've taken individually where it's just me on the road. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of time for your thoughts. Uh, you spend a lot of time kind of looking ahead at your next destination. And also, yep. you know, like I said, alone with your thoughts, you're, it's yeah. just you. And, and it can be a very kind of spiritual experience or, or at least a very philosophical one. You have a lot of time to think about your life and about what you're doing and, um, it's a nice escape. And when you, when you, when I go on bike tours with Tess, it's different. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we, we sightsee more, we have days that are less structured or less planned. We don't always know where we're going to be three or four days ahead of time. I, mm -hmm. I try and plan that stuff out on my own tours beforehand. Cause I said, I'm, I'm a bit neurotic, I'm a bit of a planner. Um, I so we tend to that. <laughs> yeah. So we take things a little more spontaneously when, when she's there. Um, I, I also, you know, when I'm by myself, I kind of like the ruggedness of it all. Like I, 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 I don't want to say I deprive myself of things, but I, I don't stay at bed and breakfasts. I don't eat fancy meals. Like, you know, I, I get fast food because it's the fuel my body wants. And I spend $5 a day and I like challenge myself to live. And it's kind of like, like hard, I don't want to say hardcore. I'm bike touring. It's not, um, but, I think but you, know you can. I, mean? I think you can allow yourself the word hardcore. I think well, living I five dollars a day is pretty hardcore. I yeah, think it's a little, more, <laughs> a little more rough and tumble. Let's put yeah, it that way. Yeah. And and when I tour with Tess, you know, she's she's not as interested in that. Um, yeah. She's capable of it. It's not yeah. that. It's yeah. just that she, you know, if we can stay at a bed and breakfast a couple of nights during the ride, she'll want to do that. And, yeah. And the that's motivations, great. the motivations and what she's seeking to get out of that experience are a little bit right. different. 
Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, so I, um, so we have a bit different philosophies and it, it does change the dynamic of the trips a little bit, but, but I really enjoy them. I, you know, I get to spend time with her. It's, it's nice to, you know, I'm in love with her. So it, it's yeah. great to, to spend that, that time together. It's very personal. It's like a thing that we do that's just us and the road. And, um, you know, I, I can't imagine being with someone who, wouldn't understand what I was doing, you know, like or what that was about for me or, and certainly like who didn't want anything to do with it. I think that would yeah. be really hard because it is something that I consider, you know, part of my identity is that, you know, I, I like to, it's my favorite way to travel. I like to just pick up and go. I like the self-sufficiency of it. I also yeah. like the, the, you know, meeting people on the road that you don't expect. And, you know, I have tons of stories from just, and like I said, very kind hearted people doing nice things while you're on the road. And I don't know, it's, it's a big part of, of my life. And I think I'm really glad she sees it that way and wants it to be a part of hers as well. That's awesome. How did you guys meet? We met on a bike tour. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> How appropriate. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the cross country trip that I did was a, a charity ride. It was okay. with a, a organization called bike and build and it's a affordable housing nonprofit they're based out of Philadelphia, but every year they sponsor, I think they're down to only a few routes now. When I did it back in 2012 or 13, I don't remember which, uh, they had six or eight different routes that went oh, wow. east to west across the United States. And, um, and basically you fundraise in order to, to perform the ride, which has its own kind of ethical uh, implications. But, but the point is that you, you fundraise and you raise money uh, and then you, it's a supported ride. So you have a support van, it carries your gear. You just sort of concentrate on biking place to place, but you stay at churches and community centers, firehouses, like That's wherever awesome. you can, it's all prearranged. They do the same uh, trips, you know, every year. So a lot of these places, you know, small towns in Oklahoma or Arizona, you know, like they're, they're waiting for you because it's, you know, That's once so a year cool. they host yeah. a bike and build team. And, yeah. um, and then along the way you stop and, and volunteer at Habitat for Humanity, rebuilding together, um, youth build, like some of the affordable housing charities that are building across the country, you kind of roll in, you crash for the night, you build the next day. And then the next day you bike again. That's amazing. Um, so yeah, it was a, a summer experience. Uh, I was one of the riders. We started actually in Portland, Maine, which is funny, um, nice. and ended in Santa Barbara, California. Wow. Um, Tess was another rider. She was actually a trip leader. Um, so every fourth day she had to drive the van. But huh. the other days we got to ride together. And um, That's so there cool. were 20 some riders on the trip. So you kind of like floated between people. You had different you know, riding groups, people to keep you company, that kind of thing. Um, but we sort of gravitated towards each other, became friends on the trip and you know, by the time we got to California, we were pretty involved. So that's awesome. It was, uh, and at that point we had a decision to make, right? Because right. You know, <laughs> yeah. we had this amazing summer, we felt this connection. And then it was like, well, what, what are you doing next? What are you doing next? And I was getting ready to go to Hawaii. I was going to be a, what's a, do a thing called woofing, mm -hmm. uh, which is, stands for willing workers on organic farms. It's kind of indentured servitude. Uh, so you <laughs> make a, <laughs> you make a deal with a, uh, with an organic farmer that you will, you know, live on their farm and work, you know, a certain number of hours or what have you, and they will provide you a place to stay and no money, but you can stay there with them and, and work a little bit. That's and awesome. often they provide like a, you know, food or, or something. We could eat anything we're out on the farm, that kind of thing. So anyway, I was, I was going to do that. And she's like, well, that sounds like fun. I said, well, you should come with me. And, uh, and we did. That's and so, outstanding. Yeah. So that, that's kind of how it started. We, uh, 
we were on a bike trip. And so we nice. had seen each other at our, our dirtiest and most tired and, um, and that's really important. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it was, we had, we, by the time we were together two or three months, I think we had been through about a year of hardship. So yeah, yeah. we thought if we could do that. And then of course we moved to Hawaii and we lived in this tiny little like shed on a farm and, uh, and we lived in that together and that was fine. And, you know, at that point it's like, what, what can't we do? And, yeah. um, so we've been together ever since. That's awesome. Which, uh, which island did you live on? Uh, we lived on the big island. We okay. were about 25 minutes south of Kailua Kona. Yep. Um, and, uh, and it was, what was the name? Our town was called Hona now. Uh, so a little town like on, right on the ocean, you could kind of see it from the farm. It was a macadamia nut farm. It was cool. a coffee farm. Uh, best coffee I've ever had in my entire life. Really? Yeah. Oh my God. It's incredible. I mean, Kona coffee has a reputation, but it yeah. is spectacular. Um, uh. Uh, we grew chocolate. So we, we actually made chocolate on the farm. Um, so we, we grew cacao and then processed mm-hmm. it into chocolate bars. Um, what else? We had oranges. We had uh, lilikoi, passion fruit. Uh, we had uh, dragon fruit on the farm. We had pineapple. It was, uh, it was beautiful. It was That's incredible. Awesome. That's yeah, awesome. We lived there for, I guess, between six and eight months. We were, we were going to move around. We had every intention of like going to different islands and different yeah. farms, but it was just a husband and wife and us on the farm and they had, and we had our own space. We uh, had a great relationship with them and um, I just really enjoyed working with them. So we stayed there for six to eight months. What did you get to experience on the big island? So I, I'm, I just got to go to Hawaii this past summer. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah. We flew into um, Oahu and then we spent mm-hmm. a few days on the big island. Um, yeah. And so what did you, what were some of your favorite things that you got to experience and do while you were there? Yeah, it was um, it, it was a long enough time period that it started that we got really familiar with the island. You know, it's yeah. it's not a huge place, even the big island, quote unquote. You know, it's it's you can drive around it in four hours, mm-hmm. um, so it's it's not huge. Um, but and we lived there long enough again to sort of that it felt familiar. We got to know some of the locals. You know, we we always went to the same store. We were kind of regulars at the couple of businesses that there were. Um, now granted we didn't have much money, so we were hitchhiking around. Uh, we did take like, I think one week where we rented a car and that was our big like vacation, quote unquote. Love it. <laughs> um, and we went around the Island. So we went to the Southern tip and saw the, the wind farms. We went to uh, volcano national park for a couple mm-hmm. of days and That's hiked a cool into park. Yeah. Hiking into the calderas is, uh, yes. is really, really wild and cool. We did that too. Um, it was surreal. Yeah, yeah, it's really amazing. We went up to um, Mauna Kea mm-hmm. and um, and did the kind of stargazing thing at the at the top of Mauna Kea, which is awesome. Nice. Um, and then uh, and we went over to Hilo and, and some of the more you know Waimea, some of the more local, less touristy parts mm-hmm. of the island. Uh, so yeah, we had a we had a really good experience. That that week was kind of the vacation week, and then the rest of it we we were kind of bouncing in between our farm and and Kona, um, nice. Kona. And, and, you know, we worked farmer's markets in downtown. So we would go to the farmer's market, we work the morning, and then we could either ride back with them to the farm or just hang out in town. And we were ready to come home, we would hitchhike. That's so cool. It sounds really (laughs) peculiar, but it's like, it's not at all uncommon in Hawaii. It's almost like you're kind of going back in time there in some ways. So yeah, we we hitched everywhere we went on the island, which was also kind of a strange and um, something that, you know, if I told my parents that's what we were going to do there they would be aghast but it's really not it's part of the culture there you know it's like not yeah. that unusual I, um, I love 
I love Kentucky. Kentucky is, if I had geographical home, that's where it would mm-hmm. be for me. And, sure. uh, and you and I both experienced that. And so I think you'll appreciate this. This is in no way at all a slight on Hawaii because I love it so much, but Corinne <laughs> and I were calling Hawaii tropical Kentucky because <laughs> it, it felt so friendly and so yeah. rural and laid back. And, um, and that's not at all a bad thing. It was just, no, it was no, just no. funny. Immediately, we, we both had the same reaction where we were like, oh my gosh, this is familiar. This is like Kentucky. Yeah, and uh, yeah. it was really, really beautiful and really fun. Yeah, um, yeah lots, lots of the locals are, you know, it's, it almost feels like if you've ever been anywhere internationally, like Costa Rica or something, you meet expats there who are kind of dis, disenchant, disenchanted Americans kind of finding a life elsewhere and, and living yeah. in different ways. And you find a lot of that in Hawaii. Yeah. Like if, sure. if you want to just like quit on society and go <laughs> just be a beach bum, you can do you it. Go to Hawaii. You can do it. Uh, and so that's that, you know, there were, there were locals certainly. And, and to locals, the opportunities that I saw there were farming or tourism. And if you didn't want to do either of those things, you had to leave, you know, there, yeah, there wasn't a lot yeah. of opportunity on the Island f- for things beyond that. Yeah. But, but outside of the locals, you also had tourists and then you had kind of like retirees. And, um, and again, that's, that's what there is there. There's farming and there's tourism and, yep. and that's it. So, so after six or eight months, you know, it, it did start to feel like an Island, right? Like yep. It, yep. Know, it was very insular. It was, there was not, you couldn't go very far. Um, so I think it was the right amount of time. And um, yeah, we, we could have done more and, and bounced to a different island or, or gone to a different farm. And maybe that would have changed the experience a little bit. But I think we were ready to come back and, and make sure that our lives were, were moving on you know, to the next opportunity. Uh, we were going to go to grad school right after, but instead uh, went and spent a year in Philadelphia working with AmeriCorps. Um, and, and lives with some friends from Bike and Build. So yes, awesome. kind of getting pulled around and, and yeah, Hawaii was great though. We, we really loved it. I'm glad you got an opportunity to go. It's a, yeah, it's a cool place. Beautiful place. It really is. It really, really is. I, it was, it was really awesome. Um, and it, it really expanded my understanding of, of just how different and diverse this country is. And that was kind of mm-hmm. cool to see. Um, I mean, I've experienced that a little bit. We've we've been pretty well traveled within the continental U.S., but it was really neat to be like, this is such a different place. And yeah, it's still America, and that was really right. really cool. Yeah, yeah, it is very different for sure. Yeah, yeah. So walk me through. You um, obviously you did the big bike and build trip. Walk me mm-hmm. through kind of your resume of you've done other long distance bike trips. So what what trips have you done? Kind of give me your your experience oh, sure. there. Yeah, uh, my so my first trip was right after um, undergrad, so that would have been 2010 or so, um, dating myself. Uh, so my first trip was was around then, right after undergrad. Uh, I had been through a bad heartbreak and was looking mm. for looking to run. You know, you get that yep. feeling where you just have to leave everything and figure out what the heck just happened. Um, so uh, so I took a bike tour, and that was something nobody in my life had bike toured. It wasn't something that I had always wanted to do or anything. It was just you know, Different. how, how can I run farther, faster, mm. uh, from, from heartache? Uh, so anyway, my first trip was on the Natchez Trace Parkway, which I recommend if anybody's thinking about bike touring, here's a great one to try the Natchez Trace Parkway. It's, it's runs parallel, um, to a couple of major highways in the South kind of starts around Nashville, maybe a little okay. bit South, uh, and then goes down to, uh, Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, I nice. Think. Nice. Uh, well, no, it actually runs all the way to Natchez. That's why it's called the Natchez Trace. It was it was the first highway in the United States uh, for like mail carriers and, and like oh, a mail cool. service. No way. Uh, 
yeah, it's it huh. kind of wild because it, it, you know, they had the trail and then they had the river to ride back down. So, um, so it's it got some interesting history that's like Americana and and um, you know, I don't want to say Western because it's not really Western, but like that period of U.S. history. Um, and so it's it's an interesting thing. They have dedicated bike campgrounds, you know, every 50, 60, 70 miles along the Natchez Trace. It's a couple of state parks that you go through, one in Alabama and, and elsewhere. You go through Tupelo, which is fun. That's the nice. best place of Elvis. Yep. <laughs> um, and so there's a so it's a nice kind of scenic ride. Uh, the speed limit for the whole thing is about 45 miles an hour. Uh, and it's a lot of rolling hills. You don't get a lot of like grueling, brutal climbs, nice. but you will get plenty of exercise. Um, and so it's a really great opportunity for a first tour if people are interested in it. Again, it's the Natchez Trace Parkway. That was my first tour. Um, and there's lots of resources out there. There's books on, on biking it. It's a very popular and common kind of route established. And again, it's, it's off the major highways. So like there's, you will see cars, but you don't have to worry too much. Everybody there is used to seeing bikes. You know, you're, you're pretty safe. Yeah, it's um, a common enough occurrence. People are kind of accustomed to it. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of an established bike route in some ways. Um, so anyway, that was my first trip, uh, and that was probably 500 miles or so. I, I did wow. it in December. I really thought the weather was going to, you know, I'm, I'm biking in the south. It's going to be warm, and it was <laughs> brutal. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I ended up turning around. I didn't make it all the way to Natchez. I had to turn around in Jackson oh, no. uh, and, and hot-footed back to Nashville to beat a, a winter storm that was coming in, like, you know, three or four days later. Oh, my uh, gosh. I, I got to a campground, and, and uh, one of the camp host was like, hey, when are you, where, where are you going and when? And I'm like, oh, this way. And he's like, you should look at the weather because in three days we're going to get hit by like a blizzard. Oh I'm like, oh, gosh. that's not good. So I ended up having to turn around and bike, you know, half one and a half times as far every day to get back in a hurry. Wow. But it, it was fine. I, you know, I survived. I got out of it what I needed to and, and I yeah. really enjoyed it. Um, let's pause on that for a minute. I want to dig into that. So put me in your head in that, in that space. I mean, you got to be tired, right? Cause you've already done oh, half sure. of your trip. You've mm -hmm. got the anxiety of a storm bearing down on you. How yeah. did you push yourself through that? How did you get, how did you get that, that little bit of extra oomph out of yourself to get yourself out of that situation? And did you have a backup plan in case you couldn't? I did not. No, okay. I, I, didn't, I didn't. I didn't know anybody in the South. Um, yeah. You know, I have lots of friends in lots of places, but at that time, I didn't have anybody that I knew uh, south of Tennessee. So, um, so yeah, you you get to that point. They say you've got three days, and I guess because I had no alternatives, there wasn't much question about what I was yeah. going to do. And and a lot of the Natchez Trace, it's a pretty rural route. It's not like mm -hmm. I could have hunkered down in a in a hotel somewhere or anything. Um, so I just figured, well. I, this is my only option is, is to turn around and go back. And, um, and so I did, I was pretty disappointed to have to turn around and be completely honest with you. Yeah. Um, but I thought, you know, this is, you got to do what you got to do sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was definitely tired. I was definitely looking forward to a hotel in, in Natchez. I was going to turn around and, and do that. Um, but it, it didn't happen. Um, and yeah, you just, I don't know. Uh, you put one foot in front of the other, you know, yeah. in some ways you just keep, don't if you look up too much you'll see the hills in front of you so just kind of look <laughs> at your front wheel sometimes when you're going yeah. uphill yeah um and uh and just grind it out and it's you know it's always a little easier going back the way you yeah came you're a little bit more familiar is. yeah you're yeah. more familiar you kind of know like oh yeah this one i remember this hill like yeah yeah so so i don't know it wasn't um it wasn't too bad but i had enough nights you know i was i was a total idiot i i didn't have a lot of camping experience i didn't have all the right gear i needed i definitely didn't have warm enough gear yeah uh, and i and i i was 
I was an idiot. I did not have a, a thermorest, like a blow up. Oh. I had never really done a lot of camping. So I was like, well, that seems like a luxury. Like what do I need <laughs> soft <Yeah>. ground <laughs> to sleep on? Not realizing that like you need the heat. That's yeah. why you sleep with a pad. Yeah. So I was sleeping on like frozen ground oh. and I'd wake up with ice on my tent and I was oh getting gosh. terrible sleep. Yeah. So I thought, you know, well, you know, the quicker I go back, the quicker that's over. So, yeah. um, so that, that's a good motivator when, when it gets sure. dark and cold and <laughs> you're sleeping on the ground with no thermorest, you'll, you'll bike faster. Absolutely. <laughs> how did you, did you, did it change how you managed your sleep? So did you sleep on a different schedule? Like, like, I guess what I'm getting at is, did you get less sleep on the way back to maximize that time on the road? Or did you find yourself sleeping about the same amount? No, because again, it, it was my first bike trip too. In fact, I probably hadn't really ridden a bike between the ages of 14 and 19 and 14 and yeah. 20, you know, like I, so it was, yeah, I was writing, I was doing something unfamiliar, something I clearly knew not enough about. Uh, I do not advise people to do what I did. Um, but it, it was one of those things that when it got dark, I was not comfortable being on the road, even gotcha. though I had lights yeah. and even yeah. you know, I was, I wasn't a complete idiot. Um, but it, when, when the sun would go down and also the campgrounds, they're every 40 or 50 miles, right? So oh, if you so pass this one, yeah. you've got yeah. to make it to the next one. And that's one of the things about touring in the U.S. that's kind of a pain in the neck for, for mm -hmm. a rule follower like me. Mm -hmm. A lot of people just ditch it, right? They'll just, yeah. you know, pull off to the side of the road, put up, put, you know, walk 100 yards off the, off the roadway and put up a tent. Yeah, I've, I've never been real comfortable with that. I like to stay at campgrounds where at least I know there's, I'm allowed to be there. I'm not going to get, you know, woken up in the night by a, yep. a farmer with a gun or a, or a yep. police officer or something. Um, so anyway, so there wasn't a lot of options for, for how many, how far I could go or when I could stop. When I got to the campground, I was like, I'd look for the next one. Oh, it's 30 miles ahead. Do I have three more hours to bike? Yes. No, you make the choice. Um, wow. but fortunately I had enough time. I, I did have, I think my longest day on that one was about 75 miles, which okay. when you're That's geared up good is a pretty substantial trip. day. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and a lot, you know, I'm sure there are cyclists listening to this that are like 75 miles. That's not a big deal. But again, when you have all your gear with you, it, it, yeah. you know, a 75 mile day is about as far as your body was. My body will take me. I should speak for yeah. myself. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's very different when you have the gear. That was the longest day. Yeah, for sure. I, I think a good rule of thumb for beginners is usually like 20 to 30 miles a day. So that's more than double <laughs> what most yeah. beginners kind of shoot for. So that's interesting. Thank you for getting us in your head on that. So after, after that trip, what else did you do? Yeah. So, uh, after that trip, I did a trip in Florida. This was after NCCC. So I kind of did a, you know, I did my first tour, then I joined, uh, AmeriCorps Vista, then I did NCCC. And then after that, I did a tour in Florida. It was about a thousand miles. I stayed with a, an NCCC friend in Orlando. So I started around Orlando, um, and biked to, uh, Tampa Bay and then across, um, to Miami and then up to St. Augustine and kind of made like a triangle in Florida, um, that was about a thousand miles and that was probably three weeks. Okay. I could have done it faster, but I just had the time and, and wanted to explore. Um, so that was, that was a great trip. Uh, I did one, uh, another trip in Virginia, kind of the Delmarva area, like okay. DC ish. Uh -huh. Um, and so we, we did a trip there that was probably about a week or so, only a couple hundred miles. That was a, vaca a vacation from, a, an AmeriCorps job that I had. Um, we did a tour two years ago in the Pacific Northwest. So we nice. did Washington state nice. and we went from, um, Seattle down to, uh, Mount Rainier and then mm -hmm. back up over the mountains to North Cascades national park. Wow. And then, um, that's a heck of a trip. 
Yeah, it was probably 800 miles or so with yeah. a couple of really nasty um, climbs to get. I was going to say you're climbs. in some elevation. <laughs> yeah, it was it was fun, man. Yeah. Uh, and then we went out to the Olympic Peninsula. We did the San Juan Islands while we were there. Um, so that was that was a really great trip. Um, and then the most recent one I did was la- not last year. Last year we had all the weddings. The year before I did a trip uh, with Tess in Vermont. Okay. And we did. It's called the Green Mountain Loop. Uh, to start. We started and ended in Burlington, and it was probably 400 miles. Um, but that, yeah, that's, I think that's it. Are there, and then of course the cross, the cross country ride, which I have sort of talked about already, but, um, that's, awesome. yeah, I think that's, that's getting to be what we've done. <laughs> that's awesome. What I have to ask, what kind of bike do you ride? Uh, I ride a Surly, which is a, a U.S. made steel frame uh, yep. company. They really specialize in, in touring bikes. Uh, they have one called the long haul trucker. That's kind of the, yep. the gold standard for touring bikes. Uh, but I read a, a cross check, which is okay. uh, built built for cyclocross. So yep. it's a little less, a little more responsive than a than a typical touring bike or a long haul trucker would be. Um, it's a little more versatile. So I, yeah. I commute on it, um, and I also kind of you know use it for joy rides. I don't know that touring bikes they're kind of built like Cadillacs a lot of times. Like you you don't necessarily want to just go twenty miles on it. It's yep. built for long and uh, and relaxed touring. So my bike is a little punchier, a little spunkier. It's got wider tires. It's a uh, Anyway, it's a Surly Crosscheck. It's probably a 2012 or 13, something like that. That's awesome. So my first my first road bike was a Surly Long Haul Trucker. Nice. And it was an XL, which was hilarious because it had 26-inch <laughs> wheels. And so it was this absolutely massive frame with these teeny wow. tiny little 26-inch wheels on it. That's so bizarre. <laughs> it was never, really funny. I would never, as a bike guy, I would never think to put 26ers on a on a long haul trucker. It's it, very strange. It was that was how they came for a long time because to this yeah. day, 26-inch wheels are still the most commonly right. found wheel yeah, size around the world. Standard. Yep. yep. And I mean, America, we've pretty much switched to 29 and uh, 27.5, but everywhere else is still 26. And uh, it was so funny. Like it had an extra spoke on like the chain stay in case you broke a spoke. Like it was like Mm -hmm. bomb proof. And uh, so I rode that for a really long time. But just like you said, like it was really slow and really sluggish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. unless it was weighed down and then like, right. it was like a luxury car like it, it rode better with weight on it than it did on un- unladen and yeah. i was like i came to this realization where i was like i'm doing i'm gonna do big trips way more rarely than i'm gonna just ride this around exactly and so i sold it to a kid who was planning to do like a tour up in the adirondacks mm-hmm. and i bought a surly straggler and i've had that ever oh, cool. since I hope someday, if you're listening, Surly, that you'll be a sponsor of this podcast because it's my favorite <laughs> bike brand, and I will always have a Surly in my stable as long as I have control over that. But I, yeah, um, they're they're terrific bikes. Oh, they're awesome. Um, yeah, and they're, and like I said, they're really they specialize in steel frames, which are great for touring. So if people are listening. This is not a Surly commercial. No free advertisement, Surly. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I am I am 100% a convert. I think they're. Mm-hmm. They're a great bike, and 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 they'll last forever. I mean, that's oh, the yeah. beauty of a of a steel frame. I don't anticipate ever having to replace this bike, barring the catastrophic. So. Yep, yep. The a, only... a, a worthwhile investment. Absolutely. The only reason I went for the straggler over the cross check was the disc brakes. That was that was the only differentiator. Um, yep. My friend rode a cross check. We just did a bike tour this last uh, June. We went. June, I guess it was. June 2020. I think it was this last year. Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. You you mentioned it to me earlier. Yeah. I don't think it was 2020. I think it was 2021. Um, All my years are blending together. COVID. COVID Pandemic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was amazing. We went out to uh, Minnesota and he, he rode a cross check and really liked it. So they're, they're good. They're good bikes. Yeah. They, like I said, they tour well. 
So yeah, for sure. for sure. So you were the first person that taught me the idea of the three H's of cycling and how they can impact a ride. Can you share those with listeners? Yeah, that, I don't, I don't know if it's like conventional wisdom, but it's something that when you're alone on, on your rides and have time to think about things, uh, this is one of the things I thought about is the, the three H's that make things really difficult when you're biking, uh, which is heat, hills, and headwinds. Um, and I, you know, when you have one of them, you're uncomfortable, but everything's okay. If you have two of them, you're going to be real uncomfortable and, and need to kind of plan for a, what I would call a challenging day. And if you have all three, you might need to alter your plans altogether. Um, you know, if you're, if you're planning to go 60 miles and it's going to be, you know, 90 degrees and humid and there's a headwind and you have a lot of hills to contend with, you know, that's going to be a really long day, at least for me, different, mm -hmm. different people are capable of different things, but um, but for me, I, you know, when, when you start getting two of those factoring in, uh, again, heat being the obvious, but also humidity, you know, you're going to be losing a lot of water, you're going to need to refuel mm -hmm. more often. Mm -hmm. um, hills being obvious as well. And it's not always like major passes. I mean, some, yeah. a lot of times, a lot of times roads are built for that, you know, yep. for cars to kind of take their time. And yeah, it's grueling, but there's a lot of pull offs. And you can, you know, there's a lot of switchbacks. And that's why I like biking out west. There's a lot of switchbacks. Mm -hmm. Here in New England, we just go straight up and straight down. And it's <laughs> yes, brutal. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of times the hills that that get you are the ones that sneak up on you, the ones yep. that aren't, you know, 2,500 uh, feet of elevation gain in, you know, 15 miles or something. Uh, that's not so bad. But, the, but then the other one, of course, is headwinds. And if you're not a, a bike rider, you know, it doesn't take much uh, of a breeze to really make you feel like you are pedaling through mud or cement. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure you experienced some on your, on your tour this summer. Oh, yeah. They are absolutely brutal. Um, and that was the thing going cross country, you know, in a lot of the great plains, there were good days where you had. And, and we rode, you know, in a single file line and kind of like took turns, uh, you know, breaking the wind and, and it was brutal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the headwinds I think are my least favorite among them. The rest yeah. of it is you can control, but the headwinds it just roars in your ear. You're very aware it's happening. Uh, and if you, if you feel a breeze, but you don't feel like you're going any slower, it's probably a tailwind. Uh, if you have a headwind, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I read some conventional wisdom recently too, that said you always have wind chill on a bike. It can have a really big effect mm. on temperature. I mean, you're up high, you know, you're, you're kind of exposed and you're moving faster than you would at a walking pace. So that, mm -hmm. that can have a really, especially if you start adding things like, you know, you're wet cause it's raining or something like yeah. that, that can have a really drastic impact too. Isn't it funny how we collect those like tidbits over time? Like <laughs> the more time you spend doing these kind of pursuits, you just get that like little book yeah. of like, they're not quite mantras, but just like wisdom, I guess. And yeah. uh, it's just kind of funny how that just organically happens. Um, what are some other lessons that you carry with you? Do you have anything else like that, that you store in your head rent-free that you've picked up from any of your trips? <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, another, another good tip that I would mention is, and I think it probably has part to do with what you just described, the wind chill on a bike and, and how different that is. I feel like when you're hiking, you, you have some warning, like your body gives you a heads up when you're hungry or thirsty and you can kind of eat or drink and then you recover while you continue to hike most of the time, you know, unless the terrain is really brutal or something. Um, but it's, it's never too late. You know, if you, if you start to feel winded, you can stop, you can eat a granola bar and then your body will process that as you continue moving. Mm -hmm. But well, when you bike, you know, oftentimes it sneaks up on you that, mm -hmm. you know, 
And by the time you realize you're hungry or thirsty, it's too late because your body needs to more quickly, like quickly enough that you can get back on the bike and exert that kind of energy um, and, and keep up with, you know, the pace or the hills or whatever it is you might be contending with. Um, so I always tell people to eat before you're hungry and drink before you're thirsty when you're on bike tours. You should be eating, you know, every hour or every hour and a half. You should be getting off the bike uh, and, and, you know, getting a piece of food. You know, I guess you don't always have to like stop, stop. You don't have to take, you know, a half hour to stop and eat a sandwich. But, you know, eat something. Eat a handful of nuts, uh, you know, grab a granola bar. Uh, one of my favorite trail foods is completely disgusting. You take a, I would never eat this like in my day-to-day <laughs> life, but you can't help it. Yeah. Um, but you take Nature Valley granola bars, the crunchy, like, you know, yep. cut up your mouth ones. Yep. Um, and you you bring a jar of the, it's called Goobers. I think it's from okay. Smuckers. It's peanut butter and jelly. Oh, like, yeah. Ribboned the, in the same yep. jar. Yep. And the jelly isn't really even jelly. It's just like corn syrup <laughs> and, you know, the peanut butter is all dried out. It's yeah. it's really terrible. But but take your Nature Valley bars, dunk them into the goobers and, and go for it because you'll get the protein and the carbs yep. and the sugar and like it all just, it's so good, man. On the road, your body just... does not care what I'm putting into it. Yep. Uh, it's, it's the one time that I can go to, you know, I can go to Taco Bell and, and order, you know, eight things off the dollar menu and, and just eat, you know, 3000 calories in a sitting. And my body's yep. like, yeah, um, <laughs> I, I always joke with people that I, I, on my road trips, I make stuff myself. I go to McDonald's and I do the same thing. Um, but it's, yeah, I, for me, you know, I don't, I'm not a very health conscious eater when I'm on the road. I'm very yeah. health conscious in my life otherwise. Yeah. But when I'm on the road, you just want the energy. And yeah. the, again, the, the key is timing. Eat before you're hungry, drink before you're thirsty, because when you bonk, you'll know it. And yeah. if you're, if you're not a biker or not a cyclist, bonking is your body is just gassed, you know, your yeah. legs won't go. Yeah. Um, and you can try and will yourself through that, uh, but it's very challenging and, and you kind of have to give yourself a little bit of recovery time, which is a luxury that you don't always have. So yep. if you can avoid bonking, uh, that would be great. And the way to do that is eat before you're hungry, drink before you're thirsty. There's a whole, someone could do a whole podcast on, um, Sorry, my internet keeps cutting out. I just got a message that I have unstable internet, which is great when you're trying oh, no. to record a podcast. Yeah, um, no, I, I, I heard part of that. Yeah, so I was saying someone could do a whole podcast on trip snacks. Like it's a subject in and of itself. Um, there's a whole yeah. study on nutrition uh, abroad. What are, what are some of your favorites, Ben? What did you eat on your bike? I, uh, so I had a really hard uh, time Oh man, my internet, my internet. Um, I had a really hard time because I have some GI issues. Um, I don't have a gallbladder anymore. And, uh, so I have to be really aware not to overload with like fats. Um, it's caused some kind of weird sensitivities to things. Um, so that was a big challenge in the summer was working around that and trying to keep myself, um, loaded on what was available in gas stations (laughs) primarily. Um, so it's tricky. Um, you know, like you can't really carry a lot of perishable stuff with you. Um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, I learned some good tricks. I think my favorite snack, like overall was we got these chewable, uh, I think Gatorade makes them. They're these little squares 
and oh, they're sure. like Gatorade gummy candy. And those things got me through some hard times. Like <laughs> those, it was just a nice little burst of sugar and, uh, and calories. One of them in the past before I had issues and I still do them sometimes. I just have to be more conscious about it for day trips where I'm not as worried about like the long-term effect. I love mm-hmm. pepperoni rolls. It's a oh, West yeah. Virginia thing. Yeah. So you're sure you're familiar. Um, I am. And man, those are great. Um, we'd get like pizza dough and, um, make our own before we would go. And, uh, those are, those are the best. Nice. Yeah. I'm a big fan. One of our favorite camp meals, we call it uh, triple P, uh, it's pesto, pasta, and pepperoni. Nice. Uh, all of which are, are non-perishable. So you can bring those with you on bike trips. So we eat that a lot. Of course we eat a lot of ramen and oatmeal, yeah. Um, yeah. but, uh, but the, the pasta, pesto, and pepperoni is a go-to uh, trail meal for us, and it never tastes better. When when I was traveling on my own, I would often just make pasta and pour hot sauce into it. Yeah, um, yep. Because it, it, you know, all that, the, the sugar, the acidity, the, you know, tasted so good, and it made you drink. Yeah. And I could drink a whole Camelback if, if I'm eating nothing but noodles and hot sauce. So, yep. um, so that was, that was really good for the end of rides, too. Um, but yeah, so it's a uh, trail food is, is definitely a fun topic. And I, I'm sorry to hear about your, uh, your, your GI issues. Cause man, that would make touring, especially tricky. It's just another layer of the adventure. Like, you know, it's, it's kind of so. interesting. I've, I, as a, especially as I've done, and I guess kind of what motivated me to do this podcast was how different people think about stuff like that. And um, a huge part of adventure is, is, the individual motivations behind it. And if you choose to look at something as a challenge instead of a barrier, it's Mm. just so much more enjoyable and easier to get around. Um, You know, I could look at that as like, oh man, like I can't go do these big trips anymore. Or I could look at it as this is going to be tough, but I can figure it out and I can find ways around it. And that makes it more fun. Well, yeah. Well, and what's the alternative, right? I mean, the alternative is, oh, so you don't, you don't, you don't go hiking. You don't go backpacking. You don't go bike touring. No way. Like, exactly. Yeah. So you just push through it. It's kind of like when I, when I had that winter storm on the Natchez trace, you just, <laughs> what's the alternative? Well, you, it's not good. So you just, you, you just do it. You work with what you've got. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Just rise to the challenge. How do you manage hydration on your trips? Cause I know that's something a lot of cyclists talk and think about, honestly, a lot of it, just hikers and anyone really kind of doing anything over distance has to think yeah. about. Um, what are your rules of, of thumb for that? Uh, yeah, I mean, not, not much except take water where you can get it. Um, yeah. that's, that's important. You know, you always start the day with a, with a full, full bladder and full water bottles. Um, I do, I do. So a lot of cyclists don't like things on their back. Yeah. Uh, so, but I, I don't mind it. My body's <clears> okay with that. So, so I do ride with a, a small day pack. It's nothing, it's not large and, you know, it carries my multi-tool and, uh, and my gloves and mm-hmm. camelback, but but, uh, but it's, I have one that's two liters for kind of day trip weekend kind of stuff. And then I have one that's three liters that I take out uh, when I tour tour. Uh, two bottle cages on the bike. Those are always full. I try and have something that has electrolytes. You know, those mm-hmm. Mio things are awesome. Because mm-hmm. uh, then you can just kind of, you know, get them when you need them. And you don't have to worry about carrying a lot of stuff otherwise. Um, but yeah, take water where you can get it. You know, if you pass a gas station or if you... stop in, uh, fill up your bladders. Uh, I drink a lot of tap water, so that's not never been a barrier for me. I, you know, I figure it's probably safe. Most places you go. Um, Absolutely. so, and that's another reason why I, I like to stay at campgrounds because they always have water. Um, and so it's one of those things where if you're, if you're roadside camping, there's probably some additional caution you need to take and some additional capacity you might need to have. 
But for me, you know, I find that two water bottles, uh, often with some kind of electrolyte in them, and a, a three three liter uh, pack, you know, even if I don't find something on the road, that's probably going to be enough to get me through the average day. Um, but if again, if my bladder is only half empty, but I stop at a gas station, I'm probably going to fill it. Yeah, because yeah. uh, you that's, just never know where you're going to get your next opportunity. That's a really really good policy. Um, I found that to be the case too, and. Uh, I guess in a, in a podcast about adventure, it's fine to talk about this, but we, we it was so hot in Minnesota. And it was the middle of summer and um, we would run into cases where we were drinking a lot of water, but we just still weren't peeing. And yeah, yeah. we were like, the trick for that was anytime we would pass a gas station, we would each get two Gatorades and drink them back to back and like disgusting mm. under normal circumstances, but like, Hey, right. it worked. <laughs> it yeah, got, no, that's, it did the yeah. trick, yeah, <laughs> you, you know, find, you, find what works. Yep. And you certainly don't want to like supplement, you know, you don't want to like replace your water with just that all the time, but it, you know, mm. it works when you need it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so for a while, as part of one of my AmeriCorps programs, I was a wildland firefighter and oh, really? one of the. Yeah, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, it's a, it was it was a trip. Oh. Uh, one of the things we used to say on the fire line all the time, though, was POPC, which stands for pee often, pee clear. And um, <laughs> I love that. And that's how you know you're you're okay. That's great. You know, I don't. I find just like you that when you're on a bike tour, you know, you, you don't you're not peeing all the time. But if you're yep. not peeing at all, you should be concerned. Absolutely. And if you ever get to a point where you, you feel like you have to ration your liquids, yeah, that's not good that's either. That's a bad place um, to be. That's a bad place to be. So. Yeah, just uh, you know, anticipate when you again when you see opportunities, don't don't let them pass by. Make sure you Absolutely. refill and, and get what you need. Where and, and a lot of times gas stations, you know, they have like fountains that yeah, you know true, where true. you can get fountain drinks. Just get the water from the fountain, you know, and, yep. and carry one of those little Mio things with you, and it'll save you some money and also some some uh, yeah, having to deal with a bunch of bottles floating around in your also world. true also true that's very very good advice very good advice yeah almost um, any restaurant or uh or gas station will let you refill water for sure yeah especially if they take pity on you if you come in looking like you're on a bike tour <laughs> they'll they'll open it up most people at least in my experience most people thought it was pretty awesome and you had this like kind yeah. of weird like dirtbag credibility when you like walked in the door where it was like where are that. you from? And like, yeah. that's, that's awesome. And like, what yeah, do you dirt, need? Dirtbag <laughs> credibility. That's a beautiful Dude, uh, way to think of it. The funniest like expressions have come out of this. We had, um, I, I really need to start a line of merch with some of the sayings that have come out of this. Because one of, <laughs> one of our other podcast guests a while back said, uh, finding the wonder in whatever. Um, yeah. And we've had a couple of other ones. I'm like, I need to start like a line of t-shirts with like these awesome phrases that have come out of these interviews because there's some good ones. Yeah, um, I'm going to take dirtbag credibility with me. <laughs> sounds uh, they, good. Yeah. And people, you, you're right. People are immensely curious, especially, yeah, yeah. you know, when you roll up on campgrounds and stuff, it's, it's people in their RVs, their car camping that like mm -hmm. what you're doing is so different from what most people do. Yeah. And I, I tend not to think of it as anything too, too outside the norm, but it turns out it is, at least when you go and talk to quote unquote normal people. Um, so but yeah, it's, people are always curious. They, they want to know, you know, where you are, where you're from and where you've been that day. And yeah, you know, the, the best is when you meet other cycle, other tourists who happen not to be on tours, but you know, they know what you're doing. And it's like this yep. little like moment uh, that you can share with people. Uh, when I was in Florida on my bike, bike trip, I stayed at a campground and I rolled in the same time as these two motorcycle guys. Huh. And, um, and they were, you know, older, they're probably my dad's age and you know, in their fifties, early sixties. And, um, and we rolled up to the campsite, they got the site right next to mine. And it turns out that they were both bike tourers when they were younger, huh. but, oh, but now cool. their bodies were kind of, you know, failing them or, or at least in a position where they didn't feel comfortable being on road bikes anymore. So they do it on motorcycles. That's awesome. 
but we had this, we had an incredible night. They took me out to dinner. I like, you know, they <laughs> put me on their choppers and we went into town and they bought my meal and brought me back. And we had uh, Budweiser and Clamato at the campsite. It was disgusting, <laughs> but they were big on it. Um, That's amazing. But yeah, we, we had a great time and they were, uh, you know, they, it's great when you find that, that kind of community people yeah. who are curious about what you're doing and, and we'll kind of take you in or, or talk to you about it. And it's, it's fun to share. It seems like you either run into people who are, you know, are doing adventures like that or have in their past and therefore connect with you on that level. Yeah. People who wish that they could be more adventurous, but maybe have come up against some barrier where they, they haven't overcome it and they're kind of longing for it. And so they're curious mm-hmm. and want to learn about your experience or, or connect with you on that level. Mm-hmm. Um, or people who maybe don't have an interest in being that way, but are still curious and still just think what you're doing is cool and interesting. And it just seems like like those have been the three kind of categories of people that I've encountered. Um, but in every case, people are willing to support you. And, and like you said, there's amazing, good people everywhere. And it's really cool to encounter them. Yeah. And I, I know I've talked a lot about staying at campgrounds, but that's one of the reasons, another one of the reasons I do it is because people who can't, who camp and go to campgrounds and, and those kind of things tend to be a little more understanding, a little yep. more kind of looking out for each other. And, and they yeah. understand that, you know, they're curious about what you're doing to a little more adventurous. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I find even, even people in RVs, you know, like I, I remember rolling up at a uh, campsite in, it was in Florida. It's, this was near Daytona and it was full. It was a weekend. I think the, I think the Daytona 500 was going on. Huh. Um, anyway, it was a weekend and it was full and, but I, and they, so they weren't going to let me camp and I'm like, well, I'm oh. on a bicycle. Where am I supposed to go? Yeah. And somebody else was checking in with their RV and they're like, just follow me and you can camp right behind my camper. And like the site's big enough for your tent. Like, and they That's made so it cool. Yeah. So people look out for you. I think, you know, it's, it's nice to have that, that sense of community and, uh, and you'll find comradeship where you don't expect it. Absolutely. And a, another, another, um, story I had, I was, uh, biking, sun was going down. I had misjudged. I ended up on a big detour, uh, on one of my trips and there was like a, a 30 mile detour, which was insane. It was like the mm. road was closed. My maps didn't show it, but when that I got a there, detour. <laughs> It was just a detour after detour after sign after sign. I'm like, my God, I'm adding 20, 25 miles to my day. I'm in trouble. And I I got to a point where, you know, the sun was going down. I was, I had lights, you know, in case of emergency, I was going to be okay. But, um, but I was in trouble and I stopped and asked somebody who was out walking his dog, uh, you know, where, where's this campsite? Here's the campsite I'm looking for. How far is it? How long is it going to take me? And he's like, oh, that's, that's 20 miles up the road. I, you know, and I'm like, what do I do? Yeah. And he's like, well, just come camp in my yard. That's and I was awesome. like, oh, really? And he's like, yeah, I mean, you're not going to make it. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, just come and, and camp in my yard. And, and so I did. And uh, yeah, we had fresh squeezed orange juice and uh, white maybe breakfast the next day. And, and now that all of this is to say, like, I am a non-threatening presence for a lot of people in this country like Mm -hmm. i am white i am straight i am a man i am safe Mm -hmm. right so there are elements of this you know not that i'm accusing everybody i've run into who's ever done anything nice to me of of being something uh uncouth but you know there's it stands to reason that i'm by myself i am a non-threatening looking person i also weigh 140 pounds right like i can't i can't overpower this guy or hurt him or his wife like he has reasons to, to not to be threatened by me. And so I definitely don't take that for granted. And I definitely want to mention it, that this activity, my experience in this country is, is through a lens, a certain lens. 
Um, and so that's something that others who adventure may have to consider for themselves is what kind of yeah. lens they're going to be seen through and whether or not, you know, they are as safe as, as I feel when I'm on the road. It's uh, sad, but true. It is. It absolutely is. There's some really, really amazing and interesting stories, even from the, just specifically from the bike touring perspective on mm-hmm. um, bikepacking.com from people that have different backgrounds than you and I, and it is a different challenge <laughs> and yeah. um, you know, whether um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you, you raise a good point and, and um, bias does exist and it's something that we have to be aware of and, and contend with whether it works in our favor or not. Um, and uh, yeah, it's definitely something that's, that's present. For sure. Yeah. When I will say touring alone, you know, I have more of those experiences when it's just me, right? If Mm -hmm. you're touring with other people, then, you know, people tend to think, oh, well, these folks have the support they need. They have each other. Like it's not when you're alone, you know, I think people kind of look at you a certain way. They think maybe they pity you or like they're just not sure what you're doing or you're like this, this poor kid, which is probably, (laughs) I'm sure how these people saw me. Um, You know, I, I didn't feel that way, but, but they may have seen me that way. And, and, you know, decided to be nice to me because I'm, you know, small and mousy and again, white, straight, um, all those things. So um, anyway, it's, it's just something to note, something I wanted to make sure that sure. people understand that not everybody will have my experience. And, um, and hopefully that doesn't mean they're having bad experiences, but yeah, uh, you just never know. Yeah, that's very true. That's very, very true. When you're planning your trips, what types of things serve as a motivation for you? So when you're, when you're putting pen to paper and looking it over for the first time, um, what gets you out the door? Um, sometimes it's places I want to go. Um, and, uh, so like my Florida trip, I did that in, in the depths of winter. Uh, and I was like, I'm going somewhere warm. Um, (laughs) sometimes it's, you know, scenery like, you know, Pacific Northwest, it was just a part of the country. I hadn't spent a lot of time in, I had friends in Seattle, uh, that I wanted to see. And, and so that was part of it. Um, you know, and and some, so sometimes it's just, you know, where do you want to go? And I find that bike touring is a, a great way to see that place. You know, I feel like in, in Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, a very kind of famous, um, philosophical, I guess it's a novel, um, but it, it delves into a lot of philosophy. It's about motorcycle touring. And, and the narrator talks a lot about how driving is different than driving a motorcycle or in our case, kind of biking. If you're driving, you know, you're inside an enclosed space, your environment is controlled. It's there's glass between you and, and the world. And it feels like more TV. You yep. know, you're just kind of watching things go by and they're going by quickly and, you know, even if you're trying to take your time, you're still moving very fast. Mm-hmm. And, and I find that bike touring, you can't move very fast. Nope. Um, it's not as glacial as hiking, you know, through hiking where you're, you can hike and hike all day. And if you look at a map, you're going to be really sad because you've gone, you know, a, a, th- a quarter of an inch, you know, it, it, it can be, <laughs> it can be the longest day imaginable and you really haven't made very much progress. So I find hiking to be kind of glacial and, and bike touring to be kind of the perfect pace for me. You know, I, I get to go 40, 50, 60 miles. That's, that's far enough to, to see some things and, and experience some different environments. And, you know, in three days, you've gone 150 miles. And sometimes that means a very different, very different scenery and very different environments. Yeah. Um, so I find that the, the pacing for me seems to work out really well. Uh, and it's, it's a lot about where I want to go and what I want to see. And, um, and I won't, I mean, I, 
I won't lie. A lot of the trips that I take are, are um, pre-mapped. There's a, a company mm-hmm. called Adventure Cycling mm-hmm. um, and they, they do a lot of uh, bike tour maps uh, mm-hmm. and bike tour planning and bike tour routes and so on. And gosh, I love their maps. Uh, so you can <laughs> check out their website. I think they're a .org. I think it's adventurecycling.org. Okay. But if you're new to touring and you, and you haven't tried it before, you're thinking about it, you know, you can go on their website. You do have to pay for their maps, but you can get them either printed or PDF, like sent to your smartphone, your device. I still use the paper maps because I'm a dinosaur. Um, <laughs> it's just something it's, fun about that too. <laughs> I know. Yeah. You like, you know, do the match lines and do yeah. the turn by turns. And, but, but that's what they have. I mean, and that's what they offer. They do them for bike touring. That's what it's for. So, you know, it's not a route you would want to drive. It's going to be slower. You're going to go through towns. You know, they offer optional routes if you want to, you know, take a jaunt up here and see this state park or, or whatever. Um, but you know, they take you on roads that are relatively safe. They take you through towns that you might be interested in. Uh, they have, you know, they mark on the maps if that town has what kind of accommodations they have. They show you where the bike shops are. You know, they're, they're not always hundred percent up to date, but if you don't, if you're like me and you, you don't want to just like constantly be on your smartphone while you're in the midst of an escape, those maps are really great because they'll take you, You'll know the route. You'll know what's available to you. You'll know where the next campground is, at least the ones that are marked. Uh, and you don't have to constantly be opening your cell phone and using your data and, and kind of stepping back into the into a connection to the real world in yeah. order to uh, to continue to to travel. So uh, my my first several tours, I had no smartphone at all, and I loved it. I just would turn my phone off and uh, and I'd turn on at night, tell my parents where I was, put it back away, and and that was it. So. The maps will take you far. It's a great organization. Uh, they are a nonprofit, and they exist to map routes across and through the United States. That's awesome. Um, so, so I often look at their maps too and say to myself, like, you know, I've got two weeks. Where, where can I go? Uh, there's a, a loop in the Adirondacks that's um, that looks like it's probably going to be my next vacation. Uh, Is it okay? You know, with my PTO. Um, but um, yeah, so that's. That's what I'll do is I'll kind of look there. They also have some nice short routes uh, around Austin, Texas, that would be cool. Um, and you can always do just like a leg too. So coastal Maine, there's a there's an Atlantic coast route that runs all the way uh, down to Key West from uh, basically from Bar Harbor, from Acadia. And so we might do a leg of, of coastal Maine at some point as well. Um, but anyway, their maps are a great place to start, especially if you're new to touring and you're intimidated by the idea of planning it all yourself and how do I know what roads and where am I going to camp and, and all of that start with their maps. You can always deviate from them, but they're a, a really great organization, and a great, great company to, uh, to start with. Solid advice. I think there's something to be said too, for having a backup that doesn't rely on cell service or battery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really wise to have, because they're, you know, you don't know if your phone's going to last all day. You don't, especially right. if you're running something like a GPS app that may take up more, um, than you're used to using your, you know, used to using with your yeah. phone. Well, and again, for me, you know, it's, it, it's part of, part of why I tour is the escapism, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't want to be looking at my phone, getting text messages, seeing Twitter notifications. Absolutely. Like I don't want any part of that when I'm on the road. I want, Absolutely. I want to be just me in the road. And there's something, like you said, really, um, really romantic about like stopping and looking at the map, Yeah, uh, yep. you know, and, and trying to remember what turns you have to make next. And it's, Oh, a mile and a half, you turn right on this road. And then, you know, like to me, it's, it's sort of, um, it's a very different experience that way than it would be if I were, if I just had the map on my phone, most of the other people who, who I see touring are just looking at the turn by turn on their phone. And, and that's great, but that that's not how I started. And mm-hmm. it's not where I want to go with it. 
Mm -hmm. So since a lot of your trips are kind of motivated by location, Mm -hmm. Is there anywhere that you really want to see again? Like for, mm. I ask that my, like my wife loves visiting new places and very rarely likes to go back to places she's already been. I don't know if you're mm -hmm. like that or if, are there places that you would like to visit again or, or trips that you'd like to do again? That's really interesting. Um, you know, there, I, I'm, I tend to align more with your wife. I think, okay. um, you know, there are too many places I want to go to really spend a lot of time going back to the places I've been. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I, I don't delve into nostalgia very often. I'm not mm. like a sentimental person. When I look at my past, I don't yearn for things that have, have gone by. Um, there are of course places I'd be happy to visit again. Mm -hmm. Um, but I found that, you know, I, I, the first time I experienced Portland was through a bike tour. The first time I experienced Bloomington, Indiana, where I went, where I later went to grad school, you know, we, we did a bike tour through Bloomington. And mm. so it's, it's, it's fun to go and live in places where you have have toured through and kind of like you know reminisce in that way um yeah but i i don't know if there are places that i that i've been on a tour that i'm oh you know and there are places that are really cool like sure. st augustine florida is yeah, it's amazing wild it's such a wild a different town you know great yeah. interesting architecture and, and a really yeah. fascinating place you know i found that to be just spectacular but I, I, again, I don't feel the need to like go back. I saw that I biked yeah, there. I, yeah. you know, that was, it was very cool. Um, but yeah, so, so I guess my short answer is no, that there's, there's really okay. not anywhere that I would, would want to go back to necessarily, except, except that I will say that bike touring through the American Southwest, through New Mexico and Arizona was not at all what I expected. Mm. Um, you know, you just, you have a certain image in your mind, sort of like we started the conversation talking about Maine and how, when you picture Maine, this is what you picture and how that's very accurate. When I picture Arizona or New Mexico and I have a mental painting, it wasn't at all what, what, what it was when we biked through it. Mm. It wasn't just flat barren. It wasn't desert. You know, it wasn't, I mean, there was that, but, mm -hmm. but there's also forests and hills and, you know, it, it, it was beautiful. Um, so I would definitely go back to the American Southwest, but if I, if I, biked through somewhere the philosophy changes i want to go live in the american southwest like that i want yeah, to go try yeah. that get a, <laughs> get immersed in the culture be around indigenous people um you know and 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 a different kind of culture and cuisine and, and see what's down there and, and i would rather live there than just bike through it again it's really neat okay this is going to be a pun and yes it's on purpose but it's really neat to hear how bikes have been a vehicle for the rest of your life like they've mm -hmm. definitely influenced and fed significant things that have happened in your life but it seems like bike touring is a means to an end for you like it's it's the fuel to the greater adventure of life is that yeah, accurate I, I i think so i think it's it like i said it's my favorite way to travel it's my favorite way to explore um and i think you, you know even there's there's convenience to to having a car to vacationing or traveling in, in a sort sort of conventional sense but when you do it on a bike, like I said, you end up in places that you otherwise wouldn't uh, mm -hmm. and, and kind of on the roads less traveled. And, and there's also the satisfaction of, of getting there, right? Yeah. Like the, yeah. the experience of, of getting there on your human power where you, you know, kind of look up a few days later and you're 400 miles from where you started. And, yeah. um, and that to me is very uh, empowering. It, you know, it makes me feel uh, strong and capable and independent. Um, even as people, you know, take care of me and, yeah. uh, and are nice yeah. to me along the way. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, there's, there's a certain, um, 
I don't know. There's a certain wanderlust that I have for it that I, I think will continue. And I don't, I don't see myself not touring at any point. I just, I mm. love doing it and, um, and hope to be able to do it a lot more. Mm. Fair enough. St. Augustine, not to loop back, but St. Augustine also has one of the most interesting and delicious distilleries I've ever visited in my entire life. So oh, that no may kidding. be, that may be a reason to go back once. Uh, maybe so yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah they have a, a bourbon that was the first bourbon actually made outside of kentucky um oh, which wow. is really interesting if they they followed all of the laws to meet the traditional standard of what a bourbon is mm-hmm. um but it was entirely produced in florida which is kind of interesting um yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm actually not surprised to hear it because Florida has a, a lot of limestone, and that's yep. Yep. Uh, the, that is what makes the water. You have spent plenty of time in Kentucky, but that makes yep. what is what makes Kentucky water so well suited for bourbon. Is the Absolutely. limestone kind of pulls out a lot of the impurities. Um, but yeah, that, that's that. That would be great. I'd St. Augustine is definitely a place I'd be happy to go back and visit. But um, yeah, 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 fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so how do you def- how do you personally define the word adventure? What does that mean for you? Uh, Hmm. <laughs> that was um, an interesting reaction. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, uh, I'll be honest. I mean, it's not, um, it's not something I've thought about defining before. Um, I think it's something that like an, an adventure is, you know, it's something that challenges you and that means something different for everybody. Right. So depending on, on where you are uh, and, and what your life looks like and how you, how you live and, and prefer to be, I think adventure is a departure from that um, almost inherently. Um, so, so for me, you know, someone who I've lived in cities, I've lived in rural element, rural environments, I've lived in suburban environments. Like I often crave what I don't, what's different, right? And that's that's what I seek out in my adventure. So here in Portland, Maine, which is the largest city in Maine, but still only 50,000 people or so, it's a small city. Uh, it's very walkable, it's very bikeable. There's a lot of great culture and food and, um, it's a really interesting place. The ocean's here, um, but the things that I, you know, that it doesn't have, uh, you know, there's I can't walk outside my door and be in the woods. I can't. Uh, there aren't really any mountains. There's there's some foothills. The whites are are not terribly far, but uh, but big mountains, you know, like um, so. Mountains, to me, adventure, Gandalf, mountains. Yeah, mountains. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so to me, adventure is is sort of seeking the things that that are not the things yeah. that are different, the things yeah. that are. I don't want to say they're missing because you know no no place has everything, but um, but but looking for opportunities to to be in a different headspace, in a different environment, different physical environment, um, and just kind of get outside your your comfort zone or your norm at least, uh, if not your comfort zone, at least your norm uh, yeah. from your day to day. I think that's that's what defines an adventure for me. I that's think that's a beautiful definition. I love it. I yeah. love it. I love it. Now you correct me if I'm wrong. You have a small operation that refurbishes old bikes, right? Well, it's just me. But okay. Me well, my, yeah. Just me <laughs> One man my, operation. Just me in my <laughs> studio apartment. But yes, I do. Okay. Um, I do fix up old bikes and um, and kind of re. I resell them, not not really for much profit, kind of just for the profit I need to buy the next bike or whatever tool I was missing on the former. Um, so it's it's definitely I describe it as a hobby that pays for itself, uh, fixing bikes. Um, but I, I do, there's a certain element of it where you take something that is rusty or, or decrepit or that someone sees as, as at the end of its life uh, and you bring it back. Um, and oftentimes, 
you know, sometimes you need to replace components, but oftentimes it's just a little TLC and, and knowing what to clean up and what to replace. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, often, often it's not, you're not, I'm not drastically overhauling a lot of bicycles. You just, you know, replace the chain and all the cables and housings and maybe a shifter here or there, or maybe they just have to ungunk it, you know, and, um, and you'd be surprised that you can, what you can bring back to life and, and put back into circulation for other people to enjoy. I, I think bikes are cool. You know, I, I don't consider myself a cyclist. I, I'm just a guy who rides a bike, um, but I, I do love bikes. I think they're just really fascinating machines. I like yeah. to know how they work. And, uh, and I like to share that with other people. Oftentimes the people who I'm selling bikes to are, you know, it's a mom buying a, a bike for her grown 16, 17 year old. You know, it's yeah. a, a person who had a bike when they were, when they were younger and now they're in college and they want to bike around town because it's much easier than driving or they don't have their car. It's, uh, you know, people who are looking for a deal because they're not, like purebred cyclists. They're just right. people who want to ride bikes. And if I can make that easier for them and give them a good experience and a reliable bike for, for a good price, that brings me a lot of satisfaction, you know, not just working with my hands, which I don't get to do in my day to day, but, but also like, you know, bringing that, bringing that bike to a new home, to someone who's going to appreciate it, get some use out of it and maybe fall in love with biking like I did. That's awesome, man. And I love that you're keeping them out of landfills, you know, it's sustainable. Yeah. And- um, you know, you're, you're bringing the joy of cycling to other people and you're preventing something that might otherwise be thrown away from being thrown away, which is amazing. Yeah. There's like infinite benefits because yeah. the other thing it teaches you, and this is another one of those, those touring advice points that you pick up along the way is when you bike tour, you need, you need one thing or the other. You either need a bike that you can trust your life to, or the knowledge and skills to be able to fix it um, <laughs> if, if it <laughs> breaks. So so you can go one either route. And that's why for brand new tourists, you know, I do recommend getting a brand new bike because yeah, yeah. you need that bike to be reliable. You need it to be set up, you know, in a way that suits you and, and so on. Uh, once you get more, if you gain more skills about how to repair bikes, uh, you know, you can, you can kind of make do with something that is lesser or with components that are a little more worn that you might need to replace. At least you know how to do that can do it on the road, but your bike is your life when you're touring and, and without it, you're stranded. So it's, um, it's definitely a tool you either need to trust your life to it and know that you can, or gain those, those knowledge and skills to repair that bike. And so that's another part of, of why I do what I do is, you know, you fix things up, you work on enough bikes. And then if you're on a tour and your chain snaps, you know what to do, or, mm. you know, you, you start hearing rubbing on your wheel. How concerned should you be? What can you do to repair that? Mm. Um, you know, so it's, it's very practical for me as well in my own life as kind of a bike tour, but, um, but yeah, for all the reasons that I, I waxed poetic about moments ago, you know, that's all, that's all a very real thing too. Yeah. Um, and I volunteer for a, a bike co-op here in Portland um, called oh, Portland. Cool. Yeah. Called the gear hub. And, uh, and they repurpose a lot of outdoor equipment, but they're primarily a bike shop and, uh, and they have a volunteer program. So I volunteer with them again, when I, I have a studio apartment, I can only work on one bike at a time. So if I'm really antsy, I'll go there and, and start working on some <laughs> of their bikes and they have, they have a great program called bikes for all Mainers and they bring um, they basically collect donated bikes uh, throughout the year. They fix them up and volunteers like me help fix them up. And then in the summer they run uh, bike rodeos and bike clinics and they kind of teach, teach low income Mainers, you know, the skills they need to, to fix up that bike and then they get to keep it no charge. That's super. Cool. Um, so it's an awesome program. They're a really cool nonprofit. Um, and I love volunteering for them. 
so that I can fix more bikes. <laughs> That's awesome. That's yeah. super, super cool. So you and I both work for the American Red Cross. We actually have the same job title. And it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting because you had talked about earlier, um, you know, you've worked pretty hard to, as you put it, avoid, you know, having any sort of big, big responsibilities employment wise. And Mm -hmm. you and I are busy. Our jobs are big and keep us occupied a lot. Uh, We work a Mm -hmm. lot of overtime, both of us. Um, How do you incorporate the spirit of adventure into your everyday life now that you're working a full-time job? What are some tips for listeners? Yeah, Ben, that's why I said I used to be cool. Um, you know, I, uh, no, my, my, you're right. I mean, the, the jobs that you and I both have, my, my job now is much more conventional. It's very much a nine to five. Um, in some ways, I asked for this. You know, I went to graduate school. I specialized in nonprofit management and, and you know, I have a, a degree. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, in some ways, I'm, I feel somewhat obligated to use it. I also uh, enjoy working for nonprofits. I always have ever since I kind of caught the service bug in AmeriCorps. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's something that is important to me to be able to give back and be communally focused. Even a lot of the, the adventuring I do, I like it to be sort of socially conscious, right? Yeah. When I biked yeah. across the country, I was going to do that anyway. But here I can do it with a charity and raise money for affordable housing. Hmm. That's my preference, right? Hmm. So, so I look for opportunities that are not just sort of for me, but also that might have a component that helps other people. Uh, AmeriCorps is another great example. Those programs are incredible. You get to, de- mm. you get to have adventure and also you get to do things for other people. So, so I like to have th- those two things be intertwined. Um, and, and that's, you know, sometimes I struggle in my current job, which is very screens oriented. You know, I work from home uh, and I, I do have a very kind of rigid schedule. I don't have a ton of, of paid time off. Um, so it's, it's definitely a challenge to try and find opportunities for quote unquote, big adventures, um, in, in the day to day, you know, I, I do try and plan my PTO around them. Like I said, in two years ago, I, I went to Vermont and did a, a nice bike tour with my partner there. Uh, last year I had too many weddings, so I just didn't get to bike tour last yeah. year. And that, that hurts, you know, I like yeah. it, it breaks my heart a little to, to make that kind of sacrifice that, <laughs> yeah. you know, if I go a year without an adventure, I get antsy. Sure. Um, this year, I'm hoping to deploy uh, with our disaster services programs at the Red Cross so that I can, you know, get some of that adventure, despite yeah. the fact that it's not in my standard job description. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll see if that comes to fruition, but that's the plan uh, this year, at least. That is one of the cool things about the Red Cross is we kind of have adventure baked in, in that sense, where if we have the opportunity to deploy, that's it. I mean, that's a huge adventure <laughs> in yeah. and of itself. Oh, for sure. And even if we don't get to go in person, I think a lot of the work that we do supports um, pretty amazing stuff. I mean, I, I my heart, I'm absolutely a humanitarian as you are too. And mm-hmm. um, so it's neat that we get to have the opportunity to support that. I think sometimes about like, you know, we're supporting blood donations and things that are saving people's lives and allowing more people to have adventures, you right. know, um, no, for sure. so it's, it's neat that we have that opportunity, but it can be tough. You know, when you're in front of a screen, no matter what you're doing, when you're in front of a screen all day, it can be hard to find that balance. Um, yeah. I read a really well, great book called micro adventures it actually was really foundational in my life about maximizing what he calls you that the author's name is Alistair Humphreys. What Alistair talks about being your five to nine, um, that time in between. And I just, I just read an article actually, uh, yesterday about spare minutes and the idea that in our everyday lives, we have time that we essentially waste. You know, we talk about killing time 
as mm. if it's a resource that we can afford to kill when it's our most precious resource. And, and how mm. often are we in between things where we're just looking at our phones or twiddling our thumbs or, right, you know, right. could you, could you find a way to challenge yourself and bring adventure into your life in some small way um, mm -hmm. in those spaces in between? And I think that speaks to what you were just talking about in, um, you know, finding, finding those gaps and trying to, trying to capitalize on it for sure. Well, and I think, you know, a callback to one of the things I mentioned at the very beginning is that, you know, living in Portland, sometimes it feels like I'm on vacation every day because it, yeah. it's, it's such an amenable place for, for those kinds of things. And I, and I do, you know, especially when the weather's nicer, I walk around every day after work, you know, I explore mm -hmm. different parts of the city. It's a small city, but I haven't walked every block. And when yeah. I do, I just kind of go out and meander. I often have headphones and or sometimes don't but you just kind of wander around in the city you live in and, and find what's around the corner. There's always new restaurants or breweries or Absolutely. Uh, shops, you know, like different things that you can kind of poke your nose into. There's some robust trail networks in Portland, a lot of urban trails. Um, so I, sometimes I'll just pick one and see where it goes. And yeah. Um, so I, I definitely have a, a bit of that and that's why I move around so much because after a couple of years, when I feel like when I've lost the ability to do that, if I walk out my door and I feel like there's nothing new to see, it's time to go because yeah, there's somewhere yeah. else that is new and, and somewhere else that can be, you know, stimulating and invigorating and, um, and can bring a sense of adventure back to my day-to-day -day world. So, you know, if you look at my resume, if I, you know, I've talked about all the places I've lived, I, I have done a lot of things. I have been a lot of places. I stay for usually about three years in a place. Uh, and if that long, uh, and then I get really antsy and I want to go yeah. um, because surely there's somewhere else to be that, that has, that will give me back that, that feeling of spontaneity and adventure and um, novelty. And so I, I, I definitely seek that out. I think there's a really strong component of exploration and adventure too, that we don't mm -hmm. always talk about, but it is, it is challenge. And I agree with you. I loved your definition and that's how I define, that's very similar to how I define adventure too. But I think there's definitely a component of exploration and, and newness and pushing yourself outside of the known um, mm -hmm. that is so crucial. And that is easy to do. I mean, like you said, yeah. do you know everywhere in your town? Do you know, I mean, shoot, do you know everywhere on your block? Yeah. Um, you know, there's always something new to see. Well, that's why I love living in walkable places and bikeable yeah. places yeah. because, you know, you can walk and bike a lot of places if you have the infrastructure around you to support that. And, and a lot of people don't, which is heartbreaking to me. The idea, you know, you have to drive every time you want to do anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I hate driving. Uh, so I, yeah. I try not to do it almost ever. Um, and that's why, you know, living in Portland is, is so wonderful. It's a great fit. And I'll also say, you know, as you sort of talk about novelty and, and, and finding new experiences and, and also staring at a screen all day, you know, nonprofit work can burn people out. There's mm -hmm. high, high burnout in nonprofit industries in general. I know that I've been part of it. Um, and so every couple of years, you know, when I, after a couple of years at, a, at an organization, when I start to feel things getting stale or start to get frustrated with, with that kind of routine or, or lack of adventure, you know, the next thing I do, I try not to make it, you know, the standard kind of career. I'm not very career oriented. So hmm. the idea of like taking the next step up the ladder doesn't matter very much to me. Hmm. Um, so I try and take a step back instead of a step forward. Hmm. And, and that's what I did, you know, coming from graduate school, when we moved to Massachusetts, we moved to a pretty rural place. There weren't a lot of nonprofits. If I was so motivated, I could have driven to say Amherst or Worcester and, hmm. you know, spent 45 minutes in a car each way. 
I didn't want to do that. And yeah. so in order to kind of recharge my batteries, I took a job on the woods crew there and I spent, you know, the better part of a year helping fuel the boilers with wood and, and taking chainsaws and clearing trails and hmm. like, you know, just doing something different, you know, moving cows from paddock to paddock hmm. and setting up fencing to do environmental surveys and like, just get out there and do something different because yeah. Yeah. If, you know, you, if you stay in your lane your whole life, you're just not going to understand very much about what other people do yeah. uh, or what it's like. And so true. So, so that's what I think, you know, despite the fact that I love my job, I do not, I can't imagine myself doing this for 20, 30 years because I, I'll lose the novelty. I'll lose the, yeah. the, the newness of it. And I also won't learn anything else about anything else. Yeah. Um, I, I would really love, I would much prefer to be a Jack of all trades than a master of any one. And, um, and I try to live that way, you know, working and becoming a wildland firefighter, working on a woods crew, going and, and, you know, working in retail for a summer or, you know, just like try different things. I, I think that's, there's something adventurous about that. that Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, after when I need a break from, from staring at a screen all day, you know, I'm, I may take a step back and start looking for jobs in I don't know, a bike shop or a co-op or a, you know, something different, you know, I'll go work on a lobster boat, maybe if we're still in Maine, like yeah. find something else that's out there and see what it's like. And if you hate it, it's not like you have to stay, you know, just that's true. That's find true. something else. Uh, that's true. Yeah. Specialization scares me and uh, mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't seem to be true for maybe everybody, but for me, the idea of, of becoming a master of one thing and, and not learning anything else um, frightens me. Um, so I, I try not to set myself up to do it. I'm, I'm happy to take a step back before I take more steps forward. You know what I love about that in you, though, is I don't hear a fear of failure. And I think that's what holds a lot of people back is they're like, yeah. well, I want to try something new, but it might not work out. And it doesn't I'm not hearing that when I'm talking to you. I, I don't hear that. Because no, you don't. I mean, it. I, I don't know. I, I don't think people really fail. I think, I think you always learn and you, you might learn if you learn that something is not for you, you know, like that's, that's just a lesson. That's not a failure that that's just, you know, you, you tried and, it, and you weren't either weren't passionate enough about it or, or didn't have the knowledge base you thought you had, or, you know, whatever the reasons, I mean, just move, move on, you know, it's, it's yeah. okay. You don't, you don't have to, to waltz in and, and be excellent at everything you do. You just, you know, just try and see what you learn. And, and if you like it, you'll learn more maybe. And I, I don't know. Yeah. And, and also you don't have, you don't have a counterfactual, right? It, regret is a funny thing hmm. because if you regret not having done something or gosh, I wish I had done something differently, you might think, you know, how it would have turned out otherwise, but you really don't. That's and, such a good point. <laughs> and so I, I tend not to dwell in, in counterfactuals, you know, that uh. I, I could have done this, or what if I had stayed here? Or what if I had moved here instead of there? Like, I just don't worry about it. I, I don't know. And again, I think a lot of that has to do with my privilege. Again, I'm, I'm, I was born into a middle-class family. I was always told you're smart, you're capable, you're competent, uh, you know, and I've been the recipient of a lot of privilege. And yeah. so I have the benefit of confidence and, and be having, and self-esteem and having been told that, that I can be successful, you know, like, so there's a lot that isn't, that that it that comes from my privilege, but I just, you know, I I I I wish I could bestow that kind of confidence on everyone. That mm-hmm. you know that you can try, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't mean you failed. You know, it yeah. just means that 
that you learn from it and you try the next thing and, and don't get discouraged. Just try again and try something different. And, you know, what did you learn from it? That's more important than whether or not you feel that you failed. That's such a beautiful perspective. Thank you for sharing that. I'm really, really, it's awesome. I'm really glad we got to hear that from you. That's, that's super cool. We, uh, we had an expression when I worked at Adventure Serve in uh, 2010, we had an expression that kind of our catchphrase for that summer was ignore the possible. And I think it speaks mm. to that idea of, you know, there is no such thing as, as regret. And I like that counterfactual idea. That's, that's a really interesting way to think about life because you're right. You don't know how it would go. And you could, you, if you had a time machine and you could put yourself in that moment and do it differently, you don't know where you're going to come out on the other side for sure. Yeah. Some of it's the butterfly effect, you know, like you, yeah. you think you do this different and, and everything's going to come and, you know, we're imaginative creatures. So it's easy yeah. to, to kind of get lost in that. And especially if it's something that you, you really wish you had done differently, you know? Yeah. Um, but you know, you wouldn't be who you are if, if you had made that different choice, you know, you probably learned things along the way and what can you carry forward instead of looking mm. back? That's, mm. that's how I try and do it. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that with us. Sure. Um, so if they're so inclined, I know you're not huge on social media. How can listeners keep up with your adventures if they'd like to do so? Do you have any, I don't know if you, I don't know if you have like a blog, do you have any social media accounts that you'd be willing to share? Um, or if you're not comfortable with that, that's okay. But if you are willing to share any of that, if there's any interest, is there a way that listeners can keep up with what you're up to? No, I, I appreciate the offer and gosh, I, I, hope I'm, I get a warm feeling thinking that anyone would even be interested in trying to follow me, but, but I am, I'm kind of a private guy, you know, and, and a lot of Fair the enough. adventures I go on are, um, are escapes for me. I, you know, I yeah. don't, I think it drives my parents and other people who care about me kind of crazy because they don't, <laughs> you know, I, they don't know what I'm doing. They don't know if I'm safe, <laughs> you know, like they're, I think I give people, um, anxiety when I travel. Uh, but yeah, I don't, uh, I don't, like I said, no blog, no, no okay. social media, really. It's not, not part of the adventure for me is, is sharing it beyond, beyond the immediate. A lot of the travels I do for me, or I do for the people I'm with. And, and I don't, don't tend to carry those forward, except that I come back with good stories. And if we sit down and have a beer, I'll tell you about what it's like to work on a fire line, you know? Um, awesome. So, awesome. so yeah, it's, uh, I'm happy to talk about it, but only with people who are close to me, really. So then real quick, before we're finished, what is it like to work on a fire line? Uh, it's grueling. Uh, and I could, <laughs> I would never survive it in the big leagues out West. I mean, mm. those, those men and women who do that are, are insane, uh, insane heroes. They're very courageous, uh, putting themselves in danger and, uh, and working really long hours. One thing that people don't often realize about wildland fire, you can't get equipment places like it. You can't just drive plows in and like carve a, a break. And that's what you're trying to do, right? The fire is advancing and you're trying to carve what's called a fire break. It's, mm -hmm. it's a path of, of no material that can burn. And so that way the fire hits that, that path and can't jump it, right? Mm -hmm. It has to kind of just stop. Um, and so you dig those by hand. It's often mm -hmm. a trench and you're in a line with you know, 10 or 12 people and everybody, you know, you take a swipe with your shovel, your hoe, your, your Pulaski and take a step and swipe and step mm. and swipe and step. And if you do that, you know, with love and people side by side, you eventually get a, a ditch, wow. uh, you know, that you're, that you're digging. 
but it is grueling. I mean, it's, you're yeah. hot, it's dark, you're working 12, 14, 16 hour days, and you're always racing against the fire because the fire's coming and you have to not be there when it gets there, but your fire break does. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, it's definitely the hardest physical labor I've, I've ever done. Hmm. Um, but it's, you know, it, it, it's a whole other world. I'll tell you that. Um, yeah. And again, the people who do it incredibly brave, uh, and, and, just will out physical you. They look just like you and me, but they are yeah. built different. <laughs> for sure. For sure. I have a couple of friends that I hope to have on as future, uh, future guests on the podcast that just finished up a tour. They, they did it out in Alaska and then California. Awesome. And uh, yeah, they said it was, it was tough. They had a couple of guys that were um, pretty experienced, you know, ex-military guys that were up there elite elite type folks that said sure. this was way harder than anything they had ever done <laughs> um, yeah so it's got to be hard work for sure yeah it's uh it's like i said it's I, again i i play i did a lot of prescribed fire uh here on the east coast and that's you know where you're you're setting the fire intentionally and then controlling it to burn out all the fuel so that wildfire is a lesser risk it's kind of a mitigation thing mm -hmm. uh, so i did a lot of that on the east coast including in albany at the pine bush oh, did you no yeah. Way. Huh. yeah. I stayed there for six or eight weeks, led a team there. That's awesome. Um, so we did some prescribed burning there. And again, it's, it's when you get out West and you're dealing with the, the real fires out there, the wildfires, it's, it's the big leagues and it's yeah. uh, very serious. There's people who die every year, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, it, you can get, you find yourself in a situation that's, that's out of control pretty quickly. Um, so it's, yeah, definitely. Uh, I've, I hope your friends are okay and uh, yeah, and yeah, glad they're, they're willing to share their stories with you because it's for sure those are stories worth telling i tell you well Stephen, this has been great thank you for sharing your wisdom and your experience i really appreciate the time you took to be with us um i think this is going to be a great episode and uh just happy trails good luck on whatever you're doing next and uh, i hope your trip to the adirondacks goes well and uh look forward to continuing to cross paths with you yeah thanks ben this was great fun if good. uh if we end up in that neck of the woods, maybe we'll let you know. You can come Sounds up and uh, join us for a day. Come through the gaps and the passes. Uh, Sounds great. Sounds yeah. great. I want to give you a little bit of encouragement. You know, you kept saying over and over during the podcast, like, oh, I don't consider myself a cyclist or, oh, I don't consider myself, you know, this or that. And man, you've totally earned those titles. Like <laughs> I, my wife, no, seriously, I've been, my wife and I have been going through like a year or two of growth and we've been reading a lot of really good um, stuff that's really challenged and encouraged us. And one of the things that it was talking about is like, I never considered myself to be an athlete. Like I'm overweight. Um, you know, I just never, you know, bullied growing up for, for that, like never put myself mm -hmm. in that boat, in that group. And mm -hmm. she's like, if you exercise, guess what? You're an athlete. Like mm. <laughs> yeah. you, if you're doing the thing, you deserve to call yourself that even if you don't yeah. feel like you look like whatever that standard or ideal is. And I just want to encourage you in that way. Cause you you're doing the thing, man. Like you're, <laughs> you're, you're living the life and I find your outlook in your life inspiring, or, or I wouldn't have wanted, you know, I wouldn't have thought of you as a guest on here, but I think um, you're doing some really cool things. And I, I just want, I want to give you permission to call yourself the things that you are. <laughs> so <laughs> well, thank I you. appreciate your humility that you've absolutely earned the right to consider yourself among whatever that standard or ideal is because you are well i appreciate the encouragement i um yeah. you know a lot of it is especially well the cyclist thing you know i i have yet to find my place in the cycling community let's put it that way like you know i i don't like wearing the gear i don't mm. like being kind of 
I don't like worrying about my cadence. I don't, you know, there's a lot that I don't, that I kind of distance myself from mm-hmm. in cycling. There's a lot of um, status in cycling mm-hmm. that makes yeah. me uncomfortable. Yeah. There's a lot of um, exclusion in cycling that makes me it's uncomfortable. True. It's true. And there's a lot of, uh, even in fixing up bikes, you know, I mm-hmm. kind of gravitate towards like 90, 80s, 90s, early 2000s bikes that a lot of people kind of turn their noses up at because they don't have, the you know, they're model. not a one by mountain yep. bike. They don't have disc yep. brakes. They don't, you know, like I, I find that I'm drawn towards that kind of, I don't know, maybe they're like underdog bikes or something. Like there's something about them that, that I find it's, but at the same time, like if you swing the pendulum too far, that way you get the uber crunchy people in the biking world who are, are, not they're kind of almost bohemian and like i'm not that either like i have nothing against it but it's Mm -hmm. not where i belong and so i i have a hard time sometimes seeing myself as a cyclist because Mm -hmm. i don't identify with any parts of the community that i've seen and i tend to kind of go it alone you know like i i work on my own bikes and i tour by myself or with my partner and like i don't want to be affiliated with various elements of the community for different reasons and so, so part of it is that, you know, I, and I find bikes to be kind of clickish sometimes, That's very true. especially for friends that I know who work in the bike community, you know, they are almost grossed out by the, the kind of like brand affiliations that mm-hmm. they have to maintain. And like, it's an image and like, ooh, the, like, mm-hmm. that's not at all what it is for me. So that one, at least, you know, that's where that comes from is that I've yet to find my place in the bike community. Um, I'm very, I'm very similar to you in that way. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I resonated with just about everything you said. I mean, I think part of that is cycling is an expensive hobby. And so it lends yeah. itself to upper class people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, that can be tough. It can be it can be exclusionary because of that. Right. Well, and it can be. And that's that, you know, it can be an expensive hobby if you get involved in elements of the community that were that require that in order to val- for you to feel validated. Hmm. Like if you're not biking on a, a carbon bike, you know, and you try and join your local cycling riding club, you know, they may scoff at you. They may not. Yeah. My yeah. impression is that they may. Yeah. And so, you know, you get the kind of weekend warriors, the dentists and lawyers who have their $12,000 titanium frame bicycles. And yep. like, I just don't want any part of that. Like, yeah. I, you know, yeah. I, I have, I want that further than arm's length. And again, I mean, the same thing for kind of the, the crunchy bohemian, like I'm, I just, that's not who I am. I'm not a hipster, you know, like I, I'm, I don't know. So, so I, I, again, I struggle with that, especially in terms of like how I identify as fitting in to, to the cycling community. I really don't. Hmm. Um, But the rest of it, you know, for adventure, I feel like you always compare yourself to other people, right? So like, you know, I watched Free Solo. I watched mm-hmm. that guy. That guy's a psychopath. <laughs> like, I mean, he's amazing. But I, I admire the heck out of what he does. He's, he's incredible. Yeah. But, oh my God, like that guy's an adventurer. You know, like there, there's surely there are degrees or a scale or something because he and I are not on the same level. And, that, and that's okay. I don't want to be him. That's to me is a step, a bridge, a couple of bridges too far. Um, <laughs> you know, like I want to live. But, but at the same turn, that makes it hard for me to be like, yeah, I'm an adventurer. Like I wouldn't even bungee jump. So like, what does that say? Like, I, you know, there's just, there's so much of it that I am uncomfortable calling myself. 
Mm. I appreciate that, that you see me a certain way and that's great. Um, but I, I just don't think of myself, you know, we could have gone hiking today. It was too cold for me. So I yeah. didn't. Yeah. Would an adventurer do that? No, like they would just go anyway, because that's what they do. Um, but for me, it's like, you know, I, until I'm, until I meet my own definition of it, I have a hard time with that. You know, I, I take bike tours based on pre-existing maps and routes so that I have some semblance of comfort zone. Yeah. To me, that's not very adventurous. It's a controlled adventure. There's a lot of unknowns that I'm comfortable with, but my risk management is always a factor. And that's where I guess I see adventurers as more carefree, more spontaneous, more, more adrenaline focused you know i'm i'm not an adrenaline junkie at all i just i just like riding my bike you know and i like being in towns and going to different places and biking in the everglades like i like all that but i but i I don't consider myself like an adrenaline guy like if i have a close call with a car i'm like oh you know i i can't just i want to live man i think so much of that depends on perspective though like i know people i know people who would look at what you're doing and be like oh my gosh me you too. Out, you outran a snowstorm in three days. You biked yeah. 175 miles. Like, right, you know, right. uh, I No, you're so right. Yeah. And, and part of it, I mean, I like that. Right. I, I, I mentioned, I don't have a lot of people in my world who are bike tourists. Like mm-hmm. my partner is different. Her dad has, and, and her mom, they were bike tours when they were younger mm-hmm. before they had her. And then after they had her, they did some smaller things too, but, but they were very adventurous. And so she's grown up around it. Doesn't see it as anything novel or interesting or whatever and me i come from a world where nobody does what i do and none of them tour like that they don't yeah. even know what it means let alone, yeah. like what do you mean you strap your tent to your bicycle like right. well, how does yeah, that work that's what, <laughs> yeah you just strap it on and go and so they're always kind of fascinated and drawn to it but i get what you're what you're saying about perspective because her perspective is well people in my life do this this isn't that strange my perspective is like, yeah, maybe nobody does it, but there are people who do far crazier things. And, and so like, it's, it, yeah, it's completely yeah. about perspective. It is. Um, it is. But my own is, you know, and again, once you do something a few times, it's kind of like what you do for a living. Like, yeah, you, you may not consider yourself very skilled, but because it, to you, it comes easy or it's just, you're like, you've done it so long that it's, you don't think about it being hard. Uh, but then when other people try and do it, it's hard for them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so like well, you as a communicator, you've probably always been a good communicator. I've always been a good writer. So yeah. I don't think of that as a skill. I think of that as just what's writing is easy, but it, writing isn't easy. It's easy for me because I'm yeah. skilled. Yeah. Um, and that's the same thing with, with this, you know, it's all about what you're used to. It's all about what you're comfortable with and you lose perspective sometimes because you have done it for so long or in it or whatever. Well, your comfort zone is a moving target. Like, right you know, it, it doesn't stay stationary just because something's hard today doesn't mean it'll be hard tomorrow. So right. you kind of have to constantly change what you're striving for to keep it challenging and interesting. Right. And that could be distance. That could be, I think there's little ways to tweak an adventure. You could do mm-hmm. the same trip. I know you, you, you know, we talked earlier about you not liking to do the same trip over and over and, but mm-hmm. you could do the same trip hypothetically 10 times and change it in ways that make it different every single time you could go farther you could go faster you could go on a unicycle (laughs) you could could go with a different purse Uh, and that's something you know that's something i've i've considered you know doing the natchez trace either with my partner tessa or with a good friend of mine whose wedding i officiated in seattle um who he would love to bike tour and and 
his partner, that's not really her speed or her style. And that's yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, but you know, if I invited him, he'd probably jump at that chance. Um, yeah. And we could go and we could do that tour. I know the, the route I've done it before. So nothing would necessarily surprise me. And I know that that, that would be a comfortable kind of first place to, to start. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that you, you, you can do it. I just think I do need that novelty. You know, I, I yeah. need yeah. something to be different about it in order yeah. to justify doing it again. Otherwise it's just something I've already done. Yeah. Um, and, that's, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm not encouraging you to repeat trips. I actually really like your perspective on that. I, I think mm -hmm. that spirit of exploration is really important. So that, forgive me, that wasn't my point at all. I, I, I don't know. My point is just more that like, you there's always going to be someone out there doing crazier riskier bigger things oh sure but that shouldn't negate what qualifies as an achievement in your sphere right like, yeah that's that's a good point yeah. and and it's you know well there's a great ben fold song called there's always something someone cooler than you um, <laughs> and, and, and that's what the song's about is uh uh, but but I also think you know part of that is how I choose to identify and and the fact that I have so many problems with the cycling community I don't want to identify as a cyclist so I don't That's and so I think unfair. and I think adventure is that way too where you know I I appreciate adventure I uh, I seek it I like to explore but there's a there's a point where if I were if I go beyond that point I don't, it's too far for me. You know, like I, I still want to live within some semblance of convention. And that's probably because I'm a Midwesterner and I've just had that <laughs> like ground into my identity forever yeah. is that you have to be normal in some way, shape or form. <laughs> and so, you know, the idea of like, you know, like I would live in a tiny house. Okay. But would I live in a van or is that too weird? Like normal is just that. a setting on our dryer, brother. I know, I know, I know that <laughs> nobody is normal. Um, but I'm telling you, but I think that's where that comes from is like, yeah. because I was raised in the Midwest and that's like, you know, it's all about appearances and, and also your ability to fit in that, you know, the idea that I would not fit in is challenging to my psyche. Yeah. Um, and, and so I can be an adventurer to a point, but I do have to have either a big kid job or like I have to be doing something productive or hmm. like, yeah, I get all these hangups and I know that's where that comes from. Hmm. But, well, for but whatever it's, it's worth, I still think you're killing it. All right, man, have a good evening. I'm going to go eat some dinner and uh, I will catch up with you soon. Yeah, go for it. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. This is awesome. I'll, uh, I'll yeah. let you know when it airs. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Take all right, care, man. Take care. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye. Bye. Well, there you have it. I'm fortunate to count Steven as a friend and a coworker. He's a great person to know. I've learned a lot from him, even just in the short time that I've known him. And I really look forward to seeing where his adventures take him in the future. If you found this content valuable or really any of my content up to this point, please consider becoming a financial supporter. Head over to Patreon and look up the Elements of Adventure podcast. Uh, it's only going to be possible through your support. I uh, really appreciate you considering that. Uh, you know, art does take time and effort to create, and it's your contributions that are going to make uh, continued effort on this possible. So if you're moved that way, I would appreciate it. Uh, thank you for being a listener. Please share the word. Tell your friends. Uh, get the word out and put it uh, put it out there for people to, uh, to listen to and enjoy. I'll see you next time, and hope you have a great uh, rest of your month.